You're listening to Feral Attraction, hosted by Metrico and Vero the Science Collie. On tonight's episode, we talk about sexually transmitted infections, how to prevent them, what are they, and also what to do when you find out that you've contracted one. We also have a listener question about how to find a mate in the furry fandom. Hello again, and welcome to Feral Attraction. I'm Metrico. And I'm Fear of the Science Collie. So, we got, we got, literally just got back from Furthermore. Like, <laughs> that we did. Oh my goodness, that was an amazing convention, and we had an amazing panel while we were there. Yeah, it was really fun having the whole team together for once. Yeah, it was really kind of surreal for you, I bet, <laughs> to have everybody there. But it went really well. We had over 40 participants, uh, attendees, and Everybody was super into participating, asking questions, answering questions. It was really great. Yeah, we even had some discussion going on between attendees, and uh, it was probably the best audience participation we've ever had, so we were really, really happy with that. Yeah, it was so good that we actually ran out of time and ended up having to uh, kind of close it down a little bit beforehand. But before we did that, um, we did hit on a very large point of uh, STIs, or sexually transmitted infections, which you said was the most important part of the panel. Right, I want to make sure we didn't leave that out, because it's, it's really quite key. And even though, you know, we kind of were able to address it there, we wanted to address it more in a long form. And really, the podcast is the best place for us to get into it. It's the CDC, you know, the, the Center for Disease Control, reports, you know, from 2014 that really STIs have been on the increase, especially amongst uh, people between the ages of 15 to 24. And especially for people that are um, men that have sex with men, whether, you know, you're bisexual, heteroflexible, homosexual, maybe you just had one freaky deaky devil's three way. I mean, you know, it could be whatever, but the CDC reports. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I left there. (laughs) So, I mean, the thing is, is that STIs, especially in education and public schools, you're not really getting a good grasp of information. Especially uh, when it comes to LGBT issues mm-hmm. and surrounding STIs. Because generally speaking, when you know, even when health classes offer sexual health information, they're generally directing it almost exclusively at heterosexual mm-hmm. uh, individuals. And not, not, even, not covering trans issues, not covering LGBT issues, not covering any other things that might come up. That's why we wanted to make sure we talked about all those sorts of things. And I mean, even the CDC, I mean, they give like a one random, like men that have sex with men are at higher risk and they've increased 15% for gonorrhea and syphilis. That's, that's their report. But they always cite everything with the best and only way to prevent STIs is through abstinence. And quite frankly, that's bullshit. It's, well, yeah, that that's kind of like saying the best way to not die from skydiving is to never skydive. I mean, no, uh, duh. Yeah, yeah and the best uh, way to be safe on the road is to not drive your car. So, I mean, the thing is, is that there's really no way to have 100% safe sex. Any kind of sexual contact is is inherently full of risk. All things that are pleasurable in life involve some kind of risk, whether that's motorcycling, skydiving, scuba diving, um, getting out of bed in the morning, you know, whatever, <laughs> your, whatever your thing might be. Um, I don't recommend e- any of those things, really, but... Um, You know, got to do something with your life, I suppose. And so it's important that you know what risks are involved and how to make calculated risks and how to inform your partners and really how to go about your sex life. And 
that's what this episode is about. We're going to go through the common STIs. We're going to go through the treatments, what causes them, how to prevent them. There's a lot to this one. It's it's kind of a super episode, kind of like the ones from, a, you know, last month where it kind of dragged on for a bit. Right. And one key theme we're going to hit uh, throughout our discussion is really just that all uh, STI discussion or sexually transmitted infection discussion boils down to risk versus reward. We're going to talk about what the prevalence of various STIs is. We're going to talk about, um, you know, how common they're, how commonly they're transmitted, uh, what routes they're transmitted by. So you can kind of think about what all of your risks are and then think about what you, what you're comfortable with in terms of that risk. Um, it's just like any other risk you might take in life. We want to make, we want to kind of just demystify it mm-hmm. for you, take a lot of the stigma out of it. And, you know, allow you to make an educated decision, uh, as you would about whether you were considering, you know, going from owning a motorcycle or, or owning a motor, motorboat or, you know, uh, any sort of other somewhat risky but highly pleasurable activity that people have to do a risk reward analysis on. I think the riskiest part about owning a motorboat is having to maintain it. They say that if you have a boat, the best days of your life with it are the day that you buy it and the day that you sell it. Everything in between is just a shit show. It's, now, the, sa- it's the same with foxes, really. <laughs> oh, you can buy them now? <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I will be, you know, kind of honest here and say that I'm not the expert in STIs. I mean, I, I don't have the degree in them, whereas I think... I literally am an expert in STIs. I have a PhD in microbiology and infection from Columbia University. So, I, I fortunately, I have a background in epidemiology and viruses and bacteria and such. So, this, is, this isn't entirely foreign to me. So, I'll, I'll be taking a bit of the lead on the, the nuts and bolts discussion, as it were. So, you know, just, just in full disclosure, I'm going to be asking some questions here because there are some things that even I don't know. And I've done a lot of research, and I, I've actually you know, been kind of a teacher and a resource for people way back when, back before we had prep, way before Truvada existed. So it's good for me even to know the differences and how the treatments have evolved and, you know, ways that prevention has evolved. So, you know, it's, it's, I'm really looking forward to this for my own sake and also for everybody. So also one more note, please check out our show notes for this episode. I mean, it's, it's, I'll post a screenshot to our Twitter account. We have 14 pages before I even get to edit them. This is chock full of resources, links, information on how to anything that we talk about. You can read more information about. And, and please, if anything is unclear or you, you want to follow up with us, this is probably an episode where we expect to get a lot of feedback. Um, and you might actually mm-hmm. disagree with us on certain points as well, because some of the things we're going to say are going to be a bit controversial. Uh, we're going to disagree with the CDC, for example, in a couple of places. And <laughs> that is, that's always fun. But, um, yeah, so get back to us with your feedback and, and additional questions. We'll be happy to tackle them on a future show or in the advice column. And mm-hmm. uh, I have a couple of other provisos before we just get going here. Um, one of them is I'm going to cite a variety of statistics and, and things of that nature throughout uh, the episode. And unless I otherwise indicate, uh, unfortunately, a lot of these statistics really uh, predominantly apply to heterosexual couples. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's just an unfortunate fact that almost all sexual health research has been done almost exclusively with heterosexual couples. Um, so a lot of times what that means is that the risk uh, and the numbers that I'm giving you in terms of what the general risk of a transmission event is um, are almost always going to be higher, especially in the MSM or men who have sex with men category, just because uh, of the, the very fact that um, anal sex is a bit riskier activity compared to penis and vagina sex. Mm-hmm. And so if you are a man who has sex with men, um, you are going to be irritating the mucosa of the, um, of the lower, uh, gener- uh, gastrointestinal tract. So that your, your rectum. And because that, that membrane wasn't really, wasn't entirely designed to be engaging in sexual activity. 
um, it's much easier to abrade it or cause damage to it, and that can really up your chances of STI transmission. So uh, whenever I, I cite numbers, I always assume that they're going to be conservative estimates of risk. And in certain cases, we do have numbers for, for men who have sex with men as well, and I'll try to make it clear when we're talking about uh, specifically mm -hmm. uh, data on men who have sex with men. That's actually important. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like what you said. I mean, for a lot of furries, you know, the majority of furries do not, are not heterosexual. I mean, they're bisexual, homosexual, some, some variants. And it's, and that's not just something we're making up, made up, by the way. I mean, there's, there's an adjective species that's done some yes. really great polls showing that actually the majority is non-heterosexual, mm -hmm. so. Which, that's really cool. I mean, for heterosexual furries, congratulations. We're going to talk a lot about you and use a lot of numbers that directly impact you. For homosexual furries, bisexual furries, you know, furries that maybe every now and then decide that they want a little bit of the dick or the vagina, you know, this is also going to apply to you as well. A lot of what we'll be talking goes back to our stance on best practice. This is best practice for preventing STIs and what to do when you have one. Especially if you're, you know, in a non-monogamous relationship, which again, as we talked about in many previous episodes, non-monogamy is quite common in the fandom. So yeah, we just want to make sure we're hitting all those bases and hopefully you get a lot out of it. So I think that it's best to start with something that you might get in some kind of a, you know, sex education class in public school. And that's, we want to talk a little bit about prophylactics and how to use them because that's actually not really detailed that much. So yeah, prophylactic is a weird word, but that just means something that prevents something. So we're talking <laughs> about what preventative measures, the basic ones that kind of apply to most STIs. What are the basic prophylactics? So, I mean, you have condoms, which is, I mean, condoms are going to be the most visible, the most advertised. I mean, you can't go five seconds on ESPN without seeing an ad for Trojan Man. I mean, you know, condoms are quite frankly, the most commonly, you know, used type of prophylactic. And they're also, I would say, the most commonly misused. Most commonly misused for sure. <clears throat> and that's the thing. Um, so condom use, whenever you, you know, hear that condoms are really effective at preventing things like pregnancy, which is the one STI that we actually didn't include in our show notes. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, pre preventing pregnancy, preventing uh, HIV transmission, preventing other STIs, you'll usually see a little asterisk on those numbers. And it always says in fine print, uh, with perfect use. So the question then becomes, what the fuck is perfect use? That's actually something that I've been wondering. And we had to, I mean, I had to do a little bit of research, but I mean, Vera was kind of kind enough to, to fill in the gaps for me. Right. So, you know, this is something that theoretically health classes are supposed to teach, but basically they, they usually stop it rolling the condom down the banana and then they call it a day. Um, you, you don't actually hear about what happens after the banana comes because bananas can't come. It's a problem they have. Uh, we, we should all feel very sorry for bananas. Yeah. Um, I Aww. personally enjoy it quite a bit. So I, I really, my heart goes out to the banana community. Um, mm. But uh, the problem with that is um, there's actually a procedure you need to follow when you're, you're, you're dealing with, uh, with condoms. And, you know, it, they, they work a lot better with real penises. Um, so the basics are when you have a condom, it doesn't usually matter what type of condom it is. It's usually a good idea when you start out. Um, often this is something that people forget to do. Um, open the package before you really get going. Um, it's really hard to open up condom packets with Louis fingers. Yeah. Uh, I'm speaking from personal experience here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that can be a bit of a mood killer when you're fumbling around with the package for like 20 minutes. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, I think it's happened to most of us where it's like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to get, and then like you end up like having to use your teeth and then you get lube in your mouth and it's just, it's a bad time. So the good news is that you can open the packets, you know, it won't immediately dry out. It's not like it's going to open it. And then you have like five seconds to put it on you before it's dead. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, 
I did recommend if you think your things are moving towards the we're going to fuck direction, um, if, if mm-hmm. the iffiness is happening, the tail is, is raised past the horizontal, um, what you want to do mm-hmm. in that situation is, you know, you know, when you're start, starting the rolling around phase, the making out phase, just open the packet, leave it on the, on the bedside table, wherever it's convenient, put the lube next to it so you guys are ready to go when you're actually mm-hmm. ready to start heading towards uh, penetration land. Um, it's also a really good idea... To actually um, put the condom on once you've you know, developed an erection, and just um, continue to fool around and do go through some foreplay while you're getting mm-hmm. used to the condom. Don't try to skip right from putting the condom on immediately to penetration, yeah. because uh, you want to kind of give your dick a chance to forget it's wearing uh, one, yeah. and that'll actually make the the, uh, the sex actually more pleasurable, uh, because you, your your body's getting a chance to accommodate to the condom and warm it up to body temperature, yeah. and that can actually be more comfortable for the uh, receptive partner as well. And it's, I also find that sometimes if you put like a, just a teeny tiny drop of lube inside of the condom before you slip it on, I mean, a lot of the complaints that I hear from people, especially for guys that maybe have a little bit of a, a thicker penis, is that it's super tight and it's difficult to roll on. If you add a little bit of lube, it'll be a little bit pleasurable for you and it will still be secure. The other thing is uh, the lube um, is also really helps with heat transfer. So when you put lube inside of the condom, um, the main reason that condoms reduce sensation is not actually that they're preventing you from feeling friction with your penis. The problem is that it's actually preventing heat transfer from your from your partner mm-hmm. into your, into your penis, which is actually where a lot of the pleasure comes from. So if you have a bit of a fluid uh, that's that, like water, you know, water based or, or silicone based lube, that's actually a pretty good heat sink, and so it's going to allow the heat to transfer <laughs> a lot better between your penis and and your receptive partner's. Uh, anus or vagina or whatever orifice you choose to insert into. All right. Yeah. Is there a different, like, is there a negative side to using like silicone based lube or water based lube, or is it just kind of like whatever? I mean, as long as the loop you're using says it's condom safe, uh, you want to always look for that. Um, but yeah, make sure that, uh, make sure that that's true. But yeah, that shouldn't, shouldn't matter so much of it, whether it's a, a water based or, or a silicone based for that purpose. Yeah. It's good to know that. Cause I know that some people, especially they'll use like lube, uh, condoms for their toys and they're used to like, it has to be water based. So, I mean, even I don't know some of these things. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> the issue with toys is that they're also made of silicone. You can yeah. have damage to your toys. Fortunately, that's not usually an issue with, uh, with most modern condoms. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, uh, we're getting, so we got to the point where we've now got the condom out. We put a little drop of lube in it. Um, so that it, it's going to be a little more pleasurable once we, once we put the condom on. When you actually are putting the condom on, you want to make sure you grab it by the right side and kind of start seeing which way it's going to roll. Because if you try to roll the condom on the wrong way, it's not going to roll down your penis, and you're going to be exposing the outside, which is going to be going into mm-hmm. your partner, to some of the uh, secretions that your penis might be already making from the, from the foreplay, things like uh, pre-cum, which mm-hmm. means that can actually cut, transmit STIs if you're really yeah. concerned about it. So you want to make sure that you, you don't, you're, the outside of the condom does not come in contact with your penile tip. Yeah, it kind of defeats the whole purpose there. <laughs> yes, a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. If, just get that question off, off the top of our heads. Can pre-cum transmit STIs? Can pre-cum make you pregnant? Yes, it can, potentially. So be careful with that. Mm-hmm. Make sure you're rolling. You know which way the condom's going to roll. Next, grip the condom by the tip, uh, which is uh, the tip you'll always notice is kind of like a nipple-looking thing. That is designed to catch your cum when you cum. So you want to make sure that you squeeze the air out of that when you're rolling uh, the condom onto your penis so that the there has room to expand and fill with cum when you, when you shoot inside of your partner. Mm-hmm. Um, then you want to just gently roll it down your penis. Uh, Magic car, I'll let you speak uh, for those of the uncut persuasion, how that process works. So with people that are uncut like me, um, they're t- if you have a tight foreskin that actually retracts when you're erect, you're good to go. 
If you have a longer or looser foreskin, you actually don't want to pull it back. You want to kind of keep it over the head. It won't reduce sensation or anything like that, trust me. But what will happen if you do retract it, it you will actually have a lot of discomforts whenever you go into full-blown penetration because your skin will like get kind of caught and you'll get irritated. So the skin actually coming back over your head can also cause the condom to slip off, which is very yeah. dangerous. Yeah, there's that as well. So if you have a looser foreskin that doesn't retract back whenever you're you know, fully erect, then just keep it. Just keep it up front. You know, it, it'll kind of sit a little bit in where the the reservoir or where the tip is. And when in doubt about whether or not to retract, don't retract your yeah. your, your foreskin. <laughs> when in doubt, leave it out. You know, it's <laughs> it's uh, you know, it'll be fine. And you just pull it back. There's actually a really good video that we link a YouTube video in the show notes. That's not safe for work. They even use real penises. Yeah, it's actually a real life person with a real life penis with really cute tattoos. Mm. <laughs> but you know, for it, educational purposes only, all you naughty furs. Yeah, for education, mm-hmm. eighteen and over, certify that you're of age. Ah, that's bullshit. <laughs> I don't care how old you are, and you watch it. It's health information. None of us do. It's it's fine. I remember watching porn when I was like ten. It's fine. You're over eighteen. Anyway, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, so we got to the point where we're actually putting the condom on. Now we get to the sexy fun time when we're putting the condom into our partner. Ooh. Um, use plenty of lube. Uh, lube up your both your receptive partner and yourself, ideally. Um, you know, take it slow, all those fun things. Once you finish, assuming you do, good job, congratulations, mission accomplished. Um, it's really fun to, you know, enjoy cuddling mm-hmm. and afterglow when, when you finish. Unfortunately, when you're wearing a condom, you don't want to let that go on too long to the point where your penis is going soft. Yeah. Because once you finish, there's a risk of the cum that is collected in the tip of the condom leaking back uh, out of the condom. And as your penis contracts from losing its erection, uh, you create room for the, the cum to leak out. Yeah. So you want to make sure you're pulling out before you lose your erection. Uh, when you do that, you want to hold the condom firmly by the base of your penis and create a seal uh, between the uh, condom and your shaft, again, to prevent any cum from leaking out of the condom as you're withdrawing it from your partner. Mm-hmm. Once you finally pull out, you want to peel the condom back in such a way that, again, you're not uh, causing any uh, cum to leak out. You basically just want to slip it off of your penis. And then you want to tie off tie off the condom, again, to prevent cum from leaking out, uh, tie off the condom, and then just toss it in the trash, usually wrapped in, like, paper towel or something something that's kind of sanitary to prevent it from like, oh, wow, you totally just put a condom in the garbage. But, you know, make it look nice. But, yeah, just toss that in the garbage and then you should be good to go. Yeah, don't flush it because that can actually cause your plumbing to have some issues. Um, Never flush a condom if, you know, if you're, let's say that you're at home and you don't want your parents to find it. I mean... You'll find an inventive way to get rid of it, but don't flush it. It, it, It'll (laughs) it'll cause more issues than anything. And kind of what Vera was saying, when you're taking it off, make sure you don't turn it inside out. Like, I know that some people are like, oh, God, I want to get this off of me, and they pull it so quickly that it just completely inverts. You want to make sure that you're, you know, you're taking care with it because you're wearing it to prevent, you know, your fluid from transferring to them. So just be careful with that. Yeah, so that's kind of the basics <laughs> for condom use. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a video linked, a uh, YouTube video link that you can look at if you if that information went over your head or if you're mm-hmm. a really visual person, you want to see it actually happen. Or if you want to see a naked guy. That too, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, but, you know, it's really good information. Um, the video does a really good job with it. If you don't like the sound of my voice, just go watch that. Another note that I do want to make, and this is actually a question that I do see every now and then. When you're wearing a condom, only wear one condom. You don't need to wear two. Don't put a condom on top of another condom. Don't use it. 
like a condom on the dick with a vaginal condom. You want to make sure that you only use one because if you put it, it, it no, just don't do it. It'll cause tears and rips. And this is also, I, <laughs> I, I want to hope that it's kind of common sense, but I mean, we're saying this stuff because not all this stuff is common sense and education is just really bad. So don't be offended if this isn't something you're aware of because you, you should be, but mm-hmm. your school failed if you don't know this. Um, you want to make sure you're always switching condoms when going between Orify. So if you, let's mm-hmm. say you're having sex with a female partner and your penis mm-hmm. has been inside of her vagina, you want to make sure you're switching condoms before going inside of uh, her anus or uh, mm-hmm. her mouth. Uh, you want to do the same thing if you're going from uh, from anus to, to vagina. So you, you want to just want to switch condoms before changing Orify. That also applies between partners. So if you have multiple partners and you're ha- participating in a threesome or a moresome, um, you want to make sure you're changing condoms every time you switch partners. Yeah. It's it's just like you want to prevent your fluid from transferring to them. You kind of want to make sure that they're, you know, shall we say cultures don't go from one person to the other. <laughs> right. You can actually cause pretty serious infections like bacterial vaginosis and some mm-hmm. other uh, nasty things. You can also change a person's gut microbiota and give them some pretty bad GI symptoms by transferring mm-hmm. uh, one person's uh, colon uh, bacteria to another person's bacteria. So yeah, yeah you just don't want to transfer stuff when you can avoid it. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, not, you know, when you, when you take your boat out of the, uh, out of one waterway, you want to make sure you clean it off before going in the next one. Similar sort of concept here. Yeah. Don't cross-contaminate your lovers. <laughs> <laughs> now, with with uh, condoms, uh, there are a few types of, of them that you can find typically at any given store that sells these sorts of things. Yeah, I've, I've tried all of these. And I actually, mm-hmm. this is kind of an interesting side note. I have another blog that I maintain um, in my professional life that we're going to link mm-hmm. to, where I kind of covered some of the controversy about condoms and the Centers for Disease Control's condom recommendations, because um, they're a little uh, off the wall based on what what we actually know about, about the research. Um, so you can link to that for what's some background information. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but we'll put the link mm-hmm. in the show notes. Uh, the basics is that lamb condoms get a lambskin condoms got a really bum rap following the HIV epidemic. Oh um, yeah. yeah. We'll get into that just a little bit. So we'll start with the real, the real basics. Mm-hmm. So latex condoms are your pretty, your pretty basic, um, standard condoms. Uh, they're the ones that for instance, uh, New York city hands out for free, a lot of a lot of universities will hand them out for free in, in health clinics. And and, those are the lifestyles. Yeah, lifestyle brand of them. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's super basic. You know, you often uh, latex, sometimes lubricated um, condoms. Um, Some of them are flavored. Like I've seen a lot of like lifestyles that are like banana flavored. Those are for oral use only. Do not use a flavored condom for anal or vaginal intercourse that will result in a yeast infection. A lot of irritation. Don't do that. Don't do it. If you have a flavored condom, suck it. Don't fuck it. Yeah. Um, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so latex is the standard. Um, I would argue, so for my personal feeling, I, I, I'm someone who doesn't mind condoms a whole lot, but I will say latex for me are the least comfortable and my, my, not my preferred condom. Um, again, that's kind of like the basic, like mm-hmm. it's the McDonald's of the condom world. Basically it'll get you full, but it's not the most satisfying experience. You know what you're getting. You can get them anywhere. It's, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, it's, 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 I, I generally don't prefer using latex condoms, but, but the reason I bring that up is because a lot of people, I know a lot of people personally who say, oh, I, I hate condoms. I can't use condoms. Like, oh, I, I lose sensitivity. I can't come. I can't finish. Mm-hmm. I can't stay hard. All these complaints about condoms. Um, if that, if you're someone who says that and you're having a lot of, um, less safe sex because you don't like the way the latex condoms feel, I'm just going to urge you to try one of these other condom types because, um, you know, a lot of them are pretty equivalent in their protection and a lot of them feel a lot nicer. 
Uh, I linked to actually a review <laughs> of condoms that the Sweet Home did. Um, and they actually reviewed my favorite condom very highly. They also picked it as their favorite condom. So I, I felt good about my own <laughs> personal explorations there. But uh, lifestyle skin condoms uh, are pretty awesome. That's actually my condom of choice as well. Um, so two out of two uh, Feral Attraction hosts recommend Lifestyle Skin. That's not a paid no. placement. By the way, uh, if, if you, guys, you would like to pay us, if you'd though. like to pay us, though, we're, we're totally open to that. But no, that was not a, that was not an ad. That was yeah. that's, a, that's legit recommending Lifestyle yeah. Skin. But that's a completely different type of condom altogether. That's what polyisoprene, right? So polyisoprene are great for a couple of different reasons. This is a synthetic uh, rubber, unlike latex, which is natural rubber. So the advantage with polyisoprene is that um, it's not going to trigger a latex allergy in someone. That's actually a pretty common issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing about them is they actually have uh, they're a little bit thinner in the way they're produced because they're synthetic. And that extra thinness um, gives them a lot better uh, heat transfer properties compared to standard condoms. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, I mentioned that earlier, that a lot of the issues people have with condoms is through them being too restrictive and not transferring heat very well. Mm-hmm. And the, the polyisoprene kind of addresses both of those issues by helping with uh, heat transfer and being a bit thinner. It's I prefer polyis- polyisoprene because I have dated people that have had latex allergies but we still wanted to practice safer sex. So um, if if you're... Un- Honestly, I can't recommend uh, Lifestyle Skin yeah. <laughs> any more than I can here. Like, it's it's really solid, especially if you've had issues with, oh, well, I get loose sensitivity, oh, I get soft. I mean, it really is like wearing nothing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, again, the Sweet Home did a nice review of them. Uh, you can mm-hmm. read that. Uh, you can also... They have some really good advice for people who are have bigger dicks and, and smaller dicks as well. So some, some other sizing mm-hmm. options if you're one yeah. of the extremely well-endowed or less well-endowed per, per people. Yeah. Um, I'm also just going to say uh, here that um, for most people, I have a pretty big dick. I mean, it's not small. Uh, for most people, though, um, standard condoms are the right size. Yeah, um, it, it's pretty rare that you find a penis that really truly requires a magnum or uh, any mm-hmm. of the really uh, macho sounding XXL or whatever whatever they're called. I, I mean, I do tend to use ones that are a little bit larger, not because of length, but because of girth. Yeah, that's where that's actually where the issue comes in. Yeah, because I, I mean, it's 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 not to get too TMI, but I mean, yeah, it, it makes it it's still secure, but it doesn't feel like it's in a chokehold. <laughs> sure. So that's a personal preference thing, but yeah. don't feel like you have to buy a Magnum to be cool. Yeah, no. Yeah, so polyisoprene is pretty great. Um, we recommend those uh, pretty highly. And again, uh, the Skin Life by Lifestyles is a really great brand of those. Uh, the next type of condom we want to go into, uh, and I should mention that both polyisoprene, uh, the Lifestyle Skin, and, and the standard condoms, those are approved uh, by the CDC and the FDA to prevent pregnancy and to prevent um, all sexually transmitted infections. Those are the kind of the, the standard um, I will say that you keep in mind that condoms do have a breakage rate. Um, they're not perfect. Um, you know, what, there's about a 2% breakage rate with most condom mm-hmm. brands. So again, don't, don't treat condoms like they're 100% foolproof protection. Even if you're doing perfect use, as we talked about before, there's still a risk associated with them. Yeah. For anything that is transmitted by seminal, you know, transfer, there will always be some kind of a risk. So, you know, condoms are not 100% effective. They break, they slip off, you lose them inside of people sometimes if you're yeah. having really rough sex and you don't notice. I mean, things, weird things can happen. Yeah, so. so just keep that in mind. It's it's safer sex, not like, I don't know, lockdown Fort Knox sex. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so the next type of condom we're going to talk about is actually a sheepskin condom, which is a common name for it, or just uh, natural, um, you know, membrane uh, condoms. Mm-hmm. And um, these are kind of, they have got a really bum rap during the HIV epidemic. 
Uh, because the way condoms are tested is actually uh, kind of interesting. They're actually tested by determining what PSI they can handle uh, in terms of pressure. And so sheepskin condoms are not meant to expand. So they, they'll fail any test you give them that requires a PSI test. And so sheepskin condoms were never approved for being uh, HIV prevention uh, mm-hmm. condoms. Um, and so that's that's kind of why no one uses them. Or they're rare, quite, well, quite rarely used these days. Um, but uh, for people who really can't stand other condoms, there's still much better protection than nothing for a lot of STIs. And so um, I won't say that they're the ones I would recommend. But uh, if they're you're not going to if you're, you're, the alternative is not using any condom at all, and you're someone who's going to always going to go bare with all your partners, um, at least consider the sheepskin condom. Um, they uh, the issue with them is again you know which STIs they protect against is a bit controversial. Now, the average pore size, which is like the, the size of uh, the holes in the condom uh, with a sheepskin condom, is about 100 uh, uh, nanometers. And that's uh, too large to protect against certain STIs that are actually have a diameter that's smaller than 100 nanometers. Uh, small virus particles, for example, are going to get through that condom. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to protect you against things like hepatitis B, which is a very small virus. Um, however, these likely are actually effective for HIV uh, and herpes virus transmission because these are much larger virus particles and those aren't going to get through a 100 nanometer pore. There is a chance of those virus particles leaking through because, again, I said the average size of the pore is 100 nanometers. You could get very unlucky with a sheepskin condom and get one that had a much larger pore and some particles could get through that condom potentially. Um, so it's not these condoms are not officially approved for the prevention of STIs such as HIV. However, they actually are fairly protective, and they're a hell of a lot more protective than nothing at all. So as a last resort, I hate condoms. If you're one of those I hate condoms people, consider the the natural membrane or sheepskin condom if you can't consider anything else. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's. I've actually never used a sheepskin condom, but I think that's because I am, you know, post-80s AIDS. Right, it's, yeah. You know, you don't really see them that much anymore. And the label, like, has a, I think it actually has a black warrant, box warning on it saying these, don't, mm-hmm. these do not protect you against anything and, you know, yeah. don't use them, basically. They're, you're a terrible person for purchasing these, blah, 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 blah. Right, but again, it has to do more so with the way the, uh, the condoms are tested. The interesting mm-hmm. thing about sheepskin condoms is they're actually super durable. They have a breakage rate that's close to zero. Mm-hmm. So in, it's the funny thing about them is the 2% failure rate that you get with a regular condom actually makes these condoms probably more protective against HIV than, mm-hmm. uh, than the latex condoms are just by statistics, which is kind of weird. But they don't break. So that's a huge advantage. So the odds of you having one of those large pores is probably lower than the odds of uh, a latex kind of breaking. So it's kind of a mixed bag about whether they're actually protected. There's actually a huge debate mm-hmm. about it. And I wrote a blog post for my other blog, The PH Dish, that goes into the debate. So you can read that yeah. if you want more information about it. It's kind, yeah. of, it's kind of an interesting curiosity more, more than anything else. Yeah, I'll make sure that we link to that in the show notes. So, you know, check it out if you're interested in how condoms get tested and all. But that's actually a really good read. Mm-hmm. I've read it before. It's fantastic. So... Those are more like the male condoms, you know, it's, it's, that's really all you get. Right? Well, by male, we mean condoms you put on your penis. Yeah, condoms, yeah, you put on your dick. There are condoms for females that can also be used for males. Yeah, by females, we mean the receptive partner. I just want yeah. to make sure we're not getting any... Well, the reason that I'm using, like, these terms is because this is how, like, they are... They're labeled. They're yes. labeled. You have condoms or, you know, male condoms. Well, I just don't offend anyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's, it's... 
Yeah, I'm not saying this like only females can use this. Only males can use these. No, you can use whatever you want. Or that you need to identify as male or female to use any of these condoms. You can yeah. be a female who identifies as male and or yeah. a, a woman who identifies as a man and, and use whatever condoms make sense for you. Yeah, precisely. It's I mean, but just know that, you know, for um, condoms that are used for receptive partners, they are referred to in whatever supermarket or pharmacy that you go to as female condoms or femidoms. And I mean, it's, it's, they're really great. I, I love these. Um, for people that really don't like wearing condoms on their penis, they can opt to use a femidom for the receptive partner. And it's basically a small tube. Uh, typically, it's made out of what? Latex? Uh, these are actually usually nitrile. Oh, yeah, true. They are nitrile. And, you know, you kind of insert it into the orifice that you'll be penetrating, most likely the vagina or the anus. And it just acts as kind of this nice, long little tube that you can kind of, you know, fuck, you lube it up. You don't wear a condom on your dick when you're doing this. And it collects most of the, uh, most if not all, of the uh, seminal discharge. You're hoping for all. (laughs) Yeah, we're hoping for all. But yet again, these are not 100%, you know, effective. There sometimes might be tears, especially if you're having rougher sex or if you have genital piercings. Yeah, so um, for sure. So a couple more provisos on these. Um, the main brand of these that exist, there's pretty much just only one game in town. These are the FC2 uh, female mm-hmm. condom. You can just search for FC2 if that's what you're, you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really marketed, again, for use with the vagina. Uh, however, uh, they can also be used for anal sex. There's a couple of modifications that you want to make to the condom if you're going to use it for anal sex. For example, there's a, a, a ring that comes in, uh, bundled inside of the condom that you actually want to remove if you're going to use an FC2 condom for insertive uh, anal intercourse. And we link to a YouTube video that goes into the details of how exactly you use an FC2 condom for anal intercourse as well. It's a pretty fun animated video with a happy little person that guides you through using a condom in your anus. Yeah, exactly. Um, so another couple points that are that's cool about these. Um, if you are, are the receptive partner, you can actually put these in in advance of sex. So let's say you're going to a party and you think you're going to hook up with somebody. Um, you can put these in in advance and that way you, you know that even if you're, you're going to have sex, you're going to get drunk, you're going to want to have sex and you know, you say, Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot the condoms. You say, well, that's all right. I'm already, I'm already wearing a condom and you can just still have sex. So that can be a good thing. People feel protected by, mm-hmm. by being able to protect themselves and not depending on the insertive partner to handle the, the, um, protection. Yeah. And so that can be a good feature. Um, and again, as Mexico said, uh, they're not restrictive at all because they don't, they don't, they don't cover your penis. Um, they, they cover the, the, actually the, uh, in the lining of the receptive partner. It's kind of like a garbage can liner. It's not a very sexy metaphor, <laughs> yeah. um, but you can kind of think of it like a garbage can liner. So, um, th- it just fits like that. And so, um, you put, when you're putting your dick inside of it, it really doesn't feel like you're wearing a condom. I, I've used them before and they really doesn't feel that way. So, yeah. um, and especially if you're an uncut uh, person, your, your foreskin is able to fully retract yeah. and, and extend when you're using an FC2, and that can be a really more pleasurable experience for an uncut yeah. person. And, I mean, heat transfer for both partners is really great as well. I mean, the receptive partner gets all of the, you know, the feeling of being penetrated without it, you know, feeling any, you know, less sensation, and then the penetrating partner gets, you know, everything that they could want. So, I mean, for, for these types of condoms, I mean, I recommend them, especially if you genuinely are a person that just... Every time that you wear a condom, it just gets, like, super-duper soft. Yeah, for sure. And again, lambskin's one option. This is another option in that yeah. scenario, for sure. Um, there are a little bit... A uh, couple things about them that aren't so great. Um, 
especially if you're using for anal sex, um, slippage can be an issue. Mm-hmm. So you, you might actually need to use one hand to hold uh, the condom in place, uh, if you're, especially if you're going to be having some rougher sex. And you also want to make sure that you don't accidentally insert your penis around uh, the yeah. condom, which can happen if you if it, if it moves out or shifts. So it's probably not something you want to do in really poor lighting. You don't want to, might, might want to have the lights on for, for that particular uh, mm-hmm. sexy time. Yeah, which is unfortunate. I mean, especially if you just don't ever want to have the lights on. But, I mean, it's it's... I don't know. I think that could be fun too. Yeah. So you, you just want to make sure you're not inserting yeah. your penis around the condom. Obviously it's not going to protect you if you insert directly into your, your partner. So. <laughs> it isn't like a homeopathic, like <laughs> magic, you know, ring. It's not a talisman. No. Yeah. And the ring that you get inside of it also is not a magic, magic ring. You can't, it won't yeah. make you invisible or, or make your STIs invisible. <laughs> it, is, it is not the, it is not the one ring. Unfortunately not. <laughs> Nor is it even a Nuva ring. Also, uh, I'm going to recommend this as well. I, I've heard some horror stories. Um, it's a bit small, so don't attempt to use it as a cock ring. Mm, yeah, the, the the ring that comes with it. Don't don't don't. It's no. not a sex toy. No, don't try. Please put it in the trash. If you really if you really want a cock ring, like go to any good old sex shop. Go to. I don't know. What are what are some good ones? Adam and Eve. Sure, like, that's a pretty good one. That's like, a pretty good one. If you don't, if you're afraid to like go into a sex shop in person, go yeah, to Adam also, and Eve. I'm going to mention Adam and Eve is also not paying us for this episode. We they, they totally should. Yeah, no. Like honestly, <laughs> any of the things that we mentioned, we are we get no sponsorships. So like these are things that I think that you and I have used at one point or another, and are like, yes, please. Like my love for McFlurries, I wish McDonald's made me. I will take Ronald McDonald bucks any day of the week. I'll also take bucks any day of the week. Isn't that right, Koji? Oh, <laughs> oh my <Yeah>. god! <laughs> I just got kicked out of the podcast, everybody. But that I mean, no, female condoms are great, and they're available at a lot of pharmacies. It's sometimes they can be difficult to track down. Um, some college health centers will have them and stock mm-hmm. them alongside the normal plain Jane yeah. condoms, uh, and. Uh, yeah, so you, you might get lucky. If you are in school, definitely check your health center to see if you can have access to free condoms. And if anything, if there's a Planned Parenthood anywhere in your area, they I know that they stock them. It's I've checked everywhere that I go. So Planned Parenthood is really good for these as well. And you can go to a Planned Parenthood even if you're a male. So don't worry about that. You know, it's not just for females. Now, if you're afraid condoms are too expensive, do consider buying them in bulk too. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I buy my condoms by the 50 pack on Amazon. They're they're pretty they're less than a dollar condom when you buy them in bulk that way. It's not it's mm-hmm. not too expensive. So um, you know, think of, plan ahead, think ahead. You know, order online. You can save a lot of money, and you know mm-hmm. that way you're still protected and you're always good to go. Um, there's one other kind of prophylactic. That is not often commonly used, but it's something that, especially for people that enjoy engaging in oral play, that they really should consider, and that's a dental dam. Yeah, and I think um, they're actually used more widely in the community of women who have sex with women. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's probably kind of the standard sexual um, barrier that, that women will use when, when having sex with each other. Yeah. Um, but you can also use it when you're in heterosexual or homosexual male sex as well. Yeah. So basically what it is, it's a small latex square that you basically, you'll put a little bit of lube on it, and you'll kind of put it over the orifice that you're wanting to go to tongue town on, as I call it, if you're wanting to engage in uh, kind of linguist or analinguist. And you just kind of place it over the hole, and you go to town. And, and in case you don't speak Latin, uh, Magico's talking about um, eating pussy or uh, rimming. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so if you're just somebody that just loves, loves going down to that neighborhood and you're afraid of, you know, the risks of, you know, actually being down there, you know, consider getting a dental dam. It's, you can, 
Planned Parenthood again has them. You, these are things that you often do not find in pharmacies, though. Dental yes. dams are kind of uncommon, and oftentimes you have to order them online. Right. There are some alternatives as well. Um, you can. Uh, some people actually have successfully used Saran Wrap. Um, whether this is actually um, effective, the FDA or CDC <laughs> approved method is. A little bit debatable, but uh, most evidence would suggest mm-hmm. that it should be effective at preventing uh, transmission of, of things. At least it keeps it fresh. <laughs> it also keeps it fresh, yes. Add uh, a little bit of lemon. <laughs> I don't, don't recommend adding a little bit of lemon. You don't want to disrupt the pH <laughs> of your vagina. I, I, please, Metrico, don't go bad. Sex no, that's right. actually really bad advice. Don't do do not, not season your vagina. Do not season your vagina, please. No, no, no. no, no. Or your anus. That, yeah. that, that, you're in for a bad time. Yeah. However... Um, another thing people will do if they can't don't have access to a dental dam, you can actually uh, cut a latex condom and mm-hmm. use a latex condom as, a, as an improvised dental dam, and that will also mm-hmm. be effective. Um, I, I've also heard of people using like latex gloves that you can get at like Walmart or any place that sells you know like any kind of glove. In in that case, don't buy a powder glove, or again, you'll be in for a bad time. Yeah, you know, you want to make sure. Sh- no, really, really, you will be <laughs> dry down here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So no, it's it's dental dams are really great, especially if you enjoy you know eating that post puss or you know going to town on the back door. Just you know, the, these are all tools that you can use in order to limit your we'll say liability and contracting. <laughs> what are you laughing at? I mean, in some case, in some districts, it actually is criminal liability if you give someone STI. So yeah, that's that's worth mentioning. Yeah, so you want to make sure that you you limit your liability. And transmitting STIs or even contracting STIs. And these are good tools that you can use, but yet again, they have their inherent downsides. They have, you know, they're not perfect. And there are a lot of STIs that you can contract, and sometimes condoms don't protect against them. Sometimes dental dams don't prevent them. And it's important to know what STIs are commonly contracted. And I think that, you know, the big one, the big scary, scary one is HIV. Yeah, so our next section of our uh, podcast tonight is going to be getting into the nitty gritty with each of our uh, heavy hitter STIs and talk about the who, what, when, where, uh, mm-hmm. and why of, of how you contract them and how you can prevent them. And HIV is definitely the uh, the I'd say yeah. the marquee attraction for uh, most STI prevention. It is the main event, <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Fortunately, it's actually one of the uh, easier STIs to prevent. Uh, and as scary as it is, uh, transmission rates of HIV are probably a lot lower than you might think they are. And we'll get into that in just Mm -hmm. a second. So um, first off, uh, HIV is the uh, human immunodeficiency virus, um, and it uh, is the causative agent uh, for AIDS, uh, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. Um, And the way you get HIV is by um, blood-to-blood contact or blood-to-sexual fluid contact with an infected individual. Uh, So that means... um, intravenous blood use, uh, blood use, sharing needles, um, things like that. But obviously for the sake of our podcast, we're really talking predominantly about intercourse, having sex, Mm -hmm. whether that's anal sex or, uh, or, uh, penis Penis and vagina sex. Yes, exactly. Uh, so the risk of HIV infection varies quite substantially according to the infection route. And this is something that I don't think is taught very well at all in schools. Um, I kind of almost feel like the CDC keeps it a little bit hush hush. Yeah. Um, because I think people, they, they worry about well, people have a false sense of security about it because obviously the risk of HIV transmission is still a pretty big deal. Um, but assuming you're having sex with someone who has HIV, the risk of acquiring uh, HIV from that person uh, 
is actually not super high. HIV is actually a pretty difficult virus to get. It's not very successful at infecting people, which is obviously a good thing, or we have a much worse epidemic than we already have. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say you're the receptive partner during anal intercourse. Uh, your risk of contracting HIV is 138 uh, contractions in 10,000 exposures to the uh, HIV virus. So um, that risk is actually a little bit on the low side if you think about it. If you're, you know, that's a lot of sex acts in order to get to, to one, right? Right. Uh, but obviously, you can don't want to play Russian roulette with your sexual health. So you mm-hmm. want to make sure you're you're being smart about your HIV risk. Uh, but uh, if you are the insertive partner uh, during sex, your risk of contracting HIV is actually quite a bit lower. It's eleven in ten thousand exposures. So that's basically an order of magnitude or ten times lower risk for being the top than for being the bottom. So if you're bottoming during sex and you're having risky sex with, uh, say, anonymous partners or you're bottoming with partners you, who, uh, you know, you, you don't know their names or things mm-hmm. like that, if you're having really ri- risky anonymous sex, um, I strongly recommend, as a, as a bottom in particular, you really want to be looking out for your sexual health because bottoming is the most dangerous thing you can do from a sexual health perspective. Yeah, so in cases like that, I mean... If, especially if you're having anonymous sex, you know, you really, I would consider, you know, a condom, you know, at the least. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm not here to say, you know, to tell you what to do. You get to make the, you get to assess the risk that you want to take in your sexual life and your sexual health. But if you're engaging in a lot of anonymous sex, then at the very least, you should consider investing in some condoms. Right, exactly. We'll, we'll get into some other prevention methods as well mm-hmm. as, we, as we work through this, but just wanted to get that off the bat. So bottoming is super dangerous. It's the most dangerous sex yeah. act, and your risk is 10 times higher with bottoming than it is for topping. Yeah, I mean, bottoming, yeah, it's 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 great, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's there is a lot of assumed risks. Right, and again, if you think about the mechanics of it, um, the top is shooting inside of you, so they're, they're putting their sexual fluids directly inside of you, so that's yeah. risky. And again, if you're having rough sex the top might actually cause you to bleed yeah, anally. And so now, now you're directly exposing that seminal fluid to your blood. That's exactly mm-hmm. how HIV gets transmitted. So it's basically yeah. the perfect storm for uh, HIV transmission. So you really want to be careful with bottoming. Um, if you're having... Sorry. No, 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 no. I'm good. I was just I was just going to, you know, mention, like, it's it's bottoming, like, I don't know. It's, it's with rough sex. You want to make sure that if you are the bottom that you are, have some kind of control. And if you are doing things that would put you at high risk, then just make sure that you maintain control. Um, HIV is, you know, kind of the big mamma jamma, the big scary sort of thing. So make sure that you practice good health and just good positive sex practices with rough sex, especially. Um, Another thing to note is that if you're bottoming for somebody that does have a uh, some kind of a a piercing on their dick, whether that's a Jacob's ladder, um, you know, some uh, Prince Albert, things of that nature, you want to make sure that you know there are no sharp edges. Um, I know it sounds kind of silly, but that can actually cause a lot of internal tearing, especially if the sex is rough. So just be mindful of you know things that could cause internal tearing because it's not a good time, right? Now, uh, once we get past uh, the uh, mm-hmm. receptive anal intercourse, which is the riskiest, and the insertive anal intercourse, which is the next riskiest, uh, our next uh, sex act would be uh, penis and vagina sex. Um, the risk there is a bit lower. It's actually lower than the risk with insertive anal intercourse. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're the receptive part, if you're the uh, person who has the vagina and you're taking the dick, um, your risk is about 8 in 10,000 exposures. If you are the uh, 
partner placing your penis inside of the vagina, uh, your risk is about four in 10,000 exposures. So again, it's lower, still a risk, still you want to be careful there. Um, now, it is theoretically possible to transmit HIV via oral sex. However, with oral sex, the risk is so extremely low that the CDC can't actually calculate a value for what that risk is. So um, that kind of tells you how unlikely it is. It's kind of, I don't want to say it's a myth, um, but like it's happened so infrequently that they, the CDC can't track it. So um, keep that in mind. Uh, not saying you should have willy-nilly oral sex for a variety of other STIs we're going to be getting to, but in terms of HIV, oral sex is not a main route of transmission. And I mean, I think in a lot of cases, like people treat oral sex as almost foreplay. So I would imagine that also adds to the difficulty of tracking it because if you're having unprotected or, or uh, you know, unprotected oral sex, which I mean, let's be honest, I'm, it's very difficult to find somebody that puts a condom on for oral. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't myself. And it, I do feel, I mean, sometimes I feel a little bit out about that, but my kind of policy is if I'm having sex with someone who I'd want to use a condom for oral with, I question why I'm having sex with that person because it means I mm-hmm. totally don't uh, trust them. Yeah. So that's just, I mean, that's just my personal my personal rule. That doesn't mean that's your rule, but that's how I feel about it. Um, yeah. But yeah, so oral, you know, again, and, that, and of course there are people who uh-huh. only have oral sex. That's the only way they have sex. Yeah. Some people just don't like anal and that's fine. If you're one of those people, you know, that's fine, but your risk of HIV is still, it still exists. It's just much lower than the risk mm-hmm. for those other sex acts that I mentioned. Yeah. I mean, um, high five if you're, if you're in it for only oral, like, that's, yeah, totally that's cool. awesome. Yeah, that's totally fine. That's yeah. actually quite common, by the way. Yeah. Uh, statistics show that it's, it's actually much harder than a lot of people would think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's 40% of uh, men that exclusively have sex with other men, like, don't actually in- engage in anal. They don't prefer it, right? Yeah. They just, they prefer oral. So that's, yeah. that's fine. Brad. If you're one of those, for sure. Yeah. Um, so other sexual acts, not, not exactly sex, but sexually, mm-hmm. sexual adjacent acts that people often do. Sometimes they're curious whether they can cause HIV. Um, biting, for example. Um, Negligible risk of HIV, according to the CDC. Uh, kissing, again, negligible mm-hmm. risk. Um, this climaxing on someone yeah. or getting your cum, getting your cum on them, again, negligible risk. I, I wouldn't recommend coming mm-hmm. into an open wound or something like that. Obviously, maybe not the eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Like you know, again, keep in mind how the virus actually works. It needs to be exposed to blood. Yeah, generally. So keep it out of your blood. Um, keep your keep the cum and the blood separate. <laughs> If possible, um, <laughs> please. <laughs> even if you're really kinky and a BDSM edge player or something, just, you know, don't yeah. don't climax on, on an open wound. That's a bad idea. Yeah. Um, and then also sharing sex toys. I wouldn't necessarily recommend sharing sex toys with someone you don't know super well. Um, but uh, in terms of HIV risk, it's negligible again. So keep that in mind. And going back to earlier, if you are sharing a sex toy with somebody, it's also kind of good to try to clean it off, especially if it's coming directly from them. You want to practice just good hygiene with the sex toy. Yeah. And if you're using a glass sex toy, you can use a 10% bleach solution to clean it and just soak it in that occasionally. Um, Other sex toys, you can, you you can clean them with, you know, gentle soap and water and then you want to make sure you rinse them very well. Yeah. Don't, don't just like douse it in like Purell and then just jam it in there. That's Yet again, going back to inserting things that have foreign substances, you're going to have a bad time. So Yeah, exactly. But no, so I mean, those sorts of things are really negligible in terms of the risk. I mean, yet again, there is an assumed risk if you engage in those kinds of behaviors. But I mean, if the CDC isn't finding enough cases to report on them, then I mean, you know, just bear that in mind, especially when it comes to making decisions that impact you and your partner's sex lives. For sure. Uh, so next we're going to get into testing. We're talking about another recurring theme here. Um, for our show. Um, and that's that 
Uh, be, you know, we talk about the question of what does that mean for you very often on this podcast. It's one of my kind of catchphrases, I think. Um, but it comes up a lot when someone says, when you ask someone, you know, hey, have you been tested for STIs lately? And mm-hmm. they say, yeah, man, I'm clean, or yeah, man, I'm negative. Um, you might want to ask them what exactly they mean by that, and when exactly they were tested, and when exactly they changed sex partners relative to when that test was done. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is something that I don't think a lot of people really appreciate about STI testing. And that's that there's actually um, a something called uh, the testing window that applies to every STI test. And that's based on just the biology of how the tests work. Because what the test has to do is detect something of the virus or of the body's response to the virus that is uniquely indicative of an infection. And it actually takes a long time for some of those things to mm-hmm. become present in someone, even if they have a really uh, active recent infection. And mm-hmm. it's super unfortunate that, generally speaking, STIs are the most transmissible right during the acute phase of an infection, right after you've been infected. And that's when it's actually hardest to detect that an infection is present. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm going to go through all, in each of the STIs we discuss what the testing window is. And you want to make sure that you're getting tested in the right time frame to really detect whether you are positive or negative based on your last new sexual partner. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you're planning to go to a convention and have a lot of, uh, you know, sex at the convention, you want to make sure you're tested beforehand. You want to make sure that you don't have sex with any new partners during that window so that your test result is valid before you before you go to the con. Right. It doesn't make sense to get tested, like, you know, one day before the con, especially if, like, hey, I just got a new boyfriend and we just barebacked. And, up oh, the con's next week. Up, oh, I better get tested right now. Or, oh, I have a new partner and, I, oh, so two days later I'm going to go get tested before the con, so I'm still good. That doesn't actually work. And we're going to get into exactly yeah. the how and why why that doesn't work. So, again, make sure you're asking important questions. If someone says that they, they're clean or they're negative. You want to ask them exactly which STIs they were mm-hmm. tested for. You want to ask them exactly which routes of infection got tested. We'll get into that for some of the other STIs as well. Mm-hmm. And you want to ask them when, they had a, when they've had new partners relative to when that sexual testing was done. And just for the record, it is okay for you to ask these questions. If somebody says, I don't have to tell you that, well, you don't have to have sex with them. If somebody is not willing to, you know allow you to make informed decisions about your sexual health, then you need to find somebody that will allow you to. I'm just making that statement because you're, you can, you can just paw off. I mean, you can jack it off. You can jill it off. You can have fun with yourself or with them. I mean, that's another thing yeah. to keep in mind. If you're, if you're in a situation, you're really turned on with somebody and they don't have, you don't feel comfortable with their sexual mm-hmm. um, health practices based on their testing. Mutual say, hey, yeah. like, can we, can we just roll around? We can make out. We can jerk each other off. We'll still have a good time, but yeah. we're just not going to have any kind of penetration tonight because I don't, I'm not really comfortable with, you know, where we are from a sexual health perspective. Because, yeah. you know, mutual masturbation is one of the safest things you could possibly yeah. do. There, there's very few STIs you could transmit that way. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, you don't have to completely write them off. But at the same time, if you're unsure, if you're un- unclear about, you know, the practices that they have and their own sexual health and they're not willing to clarify, then, you know, make an informed decision for yourself. Yeah. But now back to the specific case of uh, HIV. Um, so there are a million different tests available for HIV. It oh, can yes. be super confusing. And so I'm just going to kind of boil it down a little bit um, because I don't want to waste too much time on this. But there are a lot of um, things called like the rapid test. Um, there are home tests for HIV, like OraQuick is, uh, is a test you can buy in the, in the, in the uh, like Walgreens or CVS. I actually uh, took an OraQuick and I posted about it on my uh, on my personal Twitter, and it's a super easy. Like it's super quick, takes about an hour. Um, 
But yeah. Yeah, so the advantages with, uh, with AuraQuick and the rapid test you can get in your doctor's office um, is that um, these tests give you results, like, right away. Like, you, you get them, and you get the results back, I think, like, an hour or so with yeah. the with a, with a rapid test. Or it's like a, a yeah. rapid test, by the way, is a pinprick yeah. test you get in the doctor's office. They, they prick your finger. Uh, basically, it looks almost like a pregnancy test. It, it shows positive or negative, and then you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the home test, the AuraQuick, it's like a little plasticky contraption. You stick your oral sample in, and you get a result. Yeah. I'll post pictures of it. I'll, I'll link to them in the show notes. Yeah. Now, the disadvantage with these tests, um, the advantage is the rapidity of the result. The disadvantage is these tests actually are somewhat indirect in the way they detect HIV. They're not really looking for HIV itself. They're looking for the presence of, of antibodies to the mm-hmm. uh, HIV virus for the most part. And because they're indirect in that way, um, they don't really have the narrowest window of detection compared to other uh, HIV tests that are available. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, these tests are not able to detect an infection for the four, first four weeks of an infection, up to even three months. So you, that, what that means is you can take one of these tests and show that you're negative, and if you become positive in the last three months, it won't, it'll like give you a false negative. It'll say mm-hmm. you're negative when you're actually positive. So um, if you've had any new sex partners in the last three months and you're taking this test, it's really kind of worthless. Right. Um, and that's why I, I don't really recommend these tests because to me, I don't feel like the tech detection window is short enough to really be all that useful. I mean, it, it's good to, it's, if it's the only thing you've got access to, it's still a good mm-hmm. idea. But again, this is a situation where if you're getting tested for a con and you, you decide this is the way you're going to do that, if you've had any sex at all in the last three months, the test is basically worthless. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's just kind of the problem with it. Um, the test that uh, is probably the, the gold standard, I would say, and in terms of the the difference between affordability, what your doctor is actually willing to prescribe for you, what, what your doctor is willing to do for you, and, and kind of what's common, um, there's this thing called the fourth generation uh, HIV test. It's an EIA test, uh, and that's um, enzyme immunoassay. If you must know, that's a little bit nitty gritty, but. Uh, I mean, I'm a virologist. <laughs> Don't worry about that. So for, fourth generation HIV test. That's all you got to know. <laughs> uh, fourth generation HIV test. The fourth generation HIV test looks for HIV in the blood directly via something called P24 antigen, which is a piece of the uh, human immunovirus um, virus. Uh, <laughs> and so... When you get this test, it's actually coupled with another test that looks for the anti-HIV antibody. So it's a bit of a, it's actually the best of both worlds in that, in that way. Mm-hmm. And this can detect infection much earlier than the rapid test can and then the oral quick uh, test can, the home test. So this can give you a result that's pretty accurate within two weeks uh, of, a, of an infection. So this is probably what you want to do if you're like thinking of going to a con. You want to really definitively say you're HIV negative. Mm-hmm. The gold standard for that is going to be the fourth generation HIV test. And this is only through uh, doctors, correct? Yes. This is something you have to go into the doctor and actually have your blood drawn. It's not a pinprick mm-hmm. test. You actually have to have, you know, you actually have to give a blood sample to go send off to the lab for this. And results from this generally take about uh, a few days to a week to come back. So again, if you're doing it for a con, you don't want to do it on the Thursday before the con. You want to do this <laughs> in advance because otherwise, oh, I got, I got tested. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. But the result is not actually going to come back during the con. So that's not so useful. Um, well, well, I was tested. <laughs> <laughs> what was the result? <laughs> I'll let you know after the con. Uh, one other thing I'll, I'll mention about this is, um, this isn't a policy that I really don't like about doctor's offices. They often like want to treat like HIV as if you're most likely to be negative, so it's no big deal. But if you're trying to down to someone that you're negative, you actually want to have proof. So don't, don't let your doctor tell you, oh, I'll just call you if you're positive. 
Um, tell the doctor, no, actually, I really, I really need to have evidence of this. I want, I want the result. A lot of doctors now have access to uh, something called a patient portal, which is a um, kind of mandated thing that the doctors need to, to offer you under something called meaningful use of uh, electronic health records. I'm a medical writer. This is, again, getting a bit in the weeds. But ask your doctor, hey, do you have a health portal? Is there a way I can access my test results online? Or, hey, is there a way that you can, you know, email me the results? Oftentimes, they actually do have a way of doing that, but you might have to ask. So make sure you're asking for access to those things. And if you're shopping around for a doctor, this is something that I would recommend that you ask before you kind of set up shop there. If you're looking for a primary care physician, this is actually something that's really beneficial for you to have, especially if you have to go, say, to the emergency room. You have immediate access to records, and it's easy for the hospital to access, especially if it's late at night when you're a primary care physician is closed. It's super good, super useful for you to keep track and make informed decisions. So ask about that portal. Yeah, again, the question asks is, do you have an electronic health record patient portal that I can access? That is the question you want to ask. It's kind of a million dollar question. <laughs> um, but if not, at least hopefully they can email you or something. Yeah. Ask them, you know, what secure message of communication do you have to give me my test results? It's Telex. Good, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question to ask. If they say, oh, we've got a fax machine, I think, then you might want to pick a different doctor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we are not endorsed by those doctors. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, you want to make sure you can actually... Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people, if you're going to go play at a con, a lot of people actually want to see that paper test result, or at least an electronic copy of it, to say, oh, yeah, that's tested. Here's my result. It's negative, non-reactive for HIV. Yeah. They want to see that paper result. Now, again, just because it's on paper doesn't mean it's valid. Keep in mind, that test is garbage the second somebody has sex with someone else. So just because they've got a paper test, if it's the third day of the con and they've been taking that dick all con, that test result is no longer so good. So make sure you're keeping that in mind. (laughs) Oh, my God, yeah. No, it's true, though. Like, you want to make sure that... You know, even though they say they have a paper that says they're, you know, they're negative, you want to make sure. So anything I should be worried about during the, you know, time of the con, anything like that, ask questions. And if you're unsure, maybe we just roll around or maybe you go have sex with somebody else and I'll tend to my own garden. Now, that said, um, you know, I don't want to panic people about it. I, I want to make sure you're warning of the risks, but I also don't want to panic people. And the, oh, my God, oh, my God, this, like I can never trust anybody. I can never trust anybody. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. again, we're going to get into risk reduction in a second. But another thing I want to point out is, let's, let's roll back to what I said earlier about how HIV actually doesn't transmit very well. Um, during, during the con, let's say that someone is really promiscuous <laughs> and they've got, they have sex 20 times before they get to you. In a row. Right, exactly. With, and now we're saying with someone who's HIV positive. Ooh. Okay, so we're adding, we're adding to the risk here. Again, that risk is still only something like 100, 138 and 10,000, right? Assuming <laughs> they're bottoming yeah. exclusively. So to get... To get HIV in that situation, you're still basically looking at a one in a thousand risk. So let's, you know, or something in that range, maybe. Yeah. One, you know, one in a hundred, one in a thousand, somewhere, somewhere down low in there. And it also depends on how recently they're infected. Mm-hmm. So these numbers are a bit loosey goosey. But my point is, it's somewhere between one percent and point one percent, just ballparking it. Yeah. Um, within within like that con experience, right? So if they have to have negative test right before a con. That still really narrows down how recently they, how many sex acts they could have possibly done before they got to you. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty suggestive of the fact that they're negative, mm-hmm. but it's not foolproof. Um, but, you know, keeping in mind that HIV does transmit poorly, um, you're looking at it, again, an odds game. But if, if they have very recent results, at least you know that you've cut down on your risk pretty substantially. Yeah. No, sex should never be scary. Like, if you're unsure about something, you just don't participate in it. 
or you find another way that you can participate without it being penetrative. You don't want to feel like, oh my god, if I look at a penis, I'll die. You know? Exactly. That's what I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. I'm not trying to say, oh, just have tons of bareback sex at cons and don't worry about it. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. But what yeah. I'm saying is like, don't. Don't get yourself so panicked that you can never enjoy being human and enjoy sex, because that's also pretty sad. So we're going to get into talking about the uh, risk reduction strategies that you can take uh, with HIV, um, because there actually are quite a few options these days. Fortunately, we're we're pretty lucky that we're not Mm -hmm. quite in the uh, dark days that were the uh, late 80s and early 90s, where it was basically uh, an unpreventable death sentence for most of uh, the uh, LGBT community. Pretty horrible. Yeah, I mean, back in that day, like, oh, congratulations, you have HIV, and, like, six months you're going to die a skeleton. Like, it was, it, I mean, it's, it's we joke about it now, like, oh, my God, it's, like, 80s AIDS, but, like, it really was kind of a terrifying time for everybody, and we would like to take the time to thank uh, Ronald Reagan for making sure that that got elevated. Not really. Oh, my God. <laughs> sorry, that was so much sarcasm. I'm so sorry. Hillary, Hillary how could you? <laughs> <laughs> you betrayed us. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, yeah, so... Uh, while we still wait for Hillary to get her foot fully extracted from her mouth <laughs> uh, on that particular faux pas. Uh, so what are, the, what are the current HIV risk reduction strategies available? So uh, condoms are still kind of the gold standard that I think almost people think about mm-hmm. when they think about HIV risk reduction. Um, now, you know, per sex act, condoms are pretty good at reducing the risk of HIV reduction. But if we take a bit of a broader look at like over the course of, you know, um, a long period of time, uh, condom use is probably somewhere between 80% uh, effective at, at reducing the risk of HIV uh, transmission and mm-hmm. you know some, somewhere a bit higher than that. But like the, uh, the most conservative studies show that HIV uh, uh, risk reduction with condoms is about 80%. Mm-hmm. So that means that your risk is going down from that, let's say that 138 out of uh, 10,000 number that I, I gave you previously. Now we're talking about 80% less than that. So right. it's getting your, your risk knocked pretty far down at that point. Um, and so that's still a pretty great um, way of reducing your risk. Um, another thing we should uh, talk about is, you know, if you're having sex with someone who's HIV positive, but this is someone who is uh, on their meds, this is someone who's taking uh, the antiretroviral therapy that has been prescribed to them by their doctor, and their, their HIV is really strongly suppressed. Um, these people often say that they're, they're undetectable. Yeah, non-detectable. You'll hear, not, you hear undetectable or non-detectable. Oh, yeah, I have HIV, but I'm, I'm not detectable. Um, th- that's referring to the amount of HIV in their blood is so low uh, that they can't actually detect it with the standard tests that are used. And so, um, in that situation, the HIV is pretty much just constrained to a few cells in their body that's just kind of maintaining the infection in a latent kind of state. And there's not a lot of uh, HIV present in either the blood or the semen at that point. Right. So, um, HIV infection there is actually quite rare. Uh, it's thought that that reduction of risk there is somewhere in the neighborhood of 96% or higher. So, you're, again, that's almost, you know, pretty close to 100% reduction, which would be no chance, right? Mm-hmm. So 96% is knocking it down pretty substantially. And I do know that there, there, there are some calculators that you can use in order to play around with, what's my risk if I do this versus that? And I think, like, I played around with one, and it showed that the, the risk, let's say that you are with a, a partner that is HIV positive, and they're on antiretrovirals, and you're also using a condom, uh, the risk is about what ninety nine percent. Like you're that reduces the risk by ninety nine percent. Well, and the other thing is scientists can't really say one hundred ever, right? Mm-hmm. That's the problem with science is we can never say 
we can never quite get to 100, right? <laughs> but when you're talking in the 99 to 96 to whatever, you know, ish range, it's, it's pretty mm-hmm. good. Um, there's actually a study that I forgot to put in the show notes that talked about, again, um, with heterosexual couples, but there's a study called the partner study. And this, this study was looking at, uh, what are called serodiscordant couples, which is, means one person has HIV and the other person does not. Mm-hmm. And these people were told to have sex as they normally would, and they were followed for a very long time um, with one of the partner, on the antiretrovirals, and the other partner, obviously, just doing yeah. the normal thing because they don't have HIV. And in that study, there were actually zero cases of HIV transmission uh, from the seropositive partner of the person who did have HIV to the seronegative partner who did not have HIV. But interestingly, uh, there still was some HIV acquisition among the seronegative people in the partner study. And what happened there is kind of interesting. You might say, oh, well, I thought you just said there was no transmission from one partner to the other. That's true. And we know that because we can look directly at the genetic makeup of the virus that was found in the seronegative people who converted during the study to being HIV positive. And it turns out that the HIV found in those individuals was actually completely unrelated to the HIV in their partners. So actually what they discovered was that some cheating was happening. Um, kind of just an interesting quirk of the mm. partner study. Um, so that's kind of kind of cool. But yeah, so it's still possible to get HIV in any situation, but that in that case, it was only through cheating. Oh. Um, so yeah, so again, there was zero cases and it was a pretty large study. It was, I think, like somewhere in the tens or hundreds of thousands of sex acts that were recorded um, during that study. So, you know, if your partner is uh, on antiretroviral therapy, is non-detectable, your risk of HIV transmission, whether or not you're using condoms, is thought to be quite, quite low. Now, if you are adding condoms on top of an antiretroviral uh, therapy for your partner, they're both, mm-hmm. they're, they're both um, non-detectable and you're using condoms uh, mm-hmm. with perfect use most of the time or all of the time, your risk reduction there is thought to be 99.2%. But again, I feel kind of silly putting that many decimal places on it because these studies are not necessarily all that accurate. That that decimal point kind of implies a bit more accuracy than I think is actually warranted in this type of study, but that's what the estimate is. So again, your risk reduction is quite a bit, quite thorough. Can't say it's impossible to get HIV in that situation, but it's highly, highly unlikely. Now, and I know that we've spoken about this on a previous episode, but there are additional medications that you can take as um, somebody that is HIV negative in order to help prevent you from, I would say, uh, what would what you say in this? Is it is it to become infected with HIV or to... Is yeah, that, to, to, to acquire HIV or to become infected with HIV. Yeah, okay. exactly. So, um, yeah, so there's also, uh, we have something called pre-exposure prophylaxis. That's a long series of words. That just means you're taking a drug before you even get HIV in order to prevent yourself from getting HIV. Um, and what these are actually, what these are is they're antiretroviral drugs like you would take if you did have HIV, but you take them in advance, basically to, to create a hostile environment inside of your body where HIV cannot take root. Now, is that like a vaccine where like you are like the flu vaccine where you're inoculated with like a dormant form of the virus or? Yeah, no, it's, it's actually nothing like that at all. It's, it's not a vaccine. All that you're being given is a drug that prevents the virus from taking root in your body. Mm-hmm. There's no components of HIV or anything related to the HIV virus going into your body. Uh, it's a lot more like if you are, let's say you're a diabetic and you decide, or you're, you're pre-diabetic. Your mm-hmm. doctors warned you that you, you could, could easily develop diabetes. 
So you decide to start eating a diabetic diet in advance <laughs> of getting diabetes in the hopes of preventing yourself from ever getting diabetes. It's a similar sort of idea. You're doing what you would do if you had the disorder already in order to prevent yourself from getting it. So it's kind of like birth control. You're not inoculating yourself with babies. You know? <laughs> exactly. You're just creating a hostile environment, environment for that thing to take root, in this case, the HIV virus. Okay, good to know. Yeah, for sure. So um, the drug that we're talking about here, the pre-exposure prophylaxis drug that's been uh, FDA approved, is called Truvada. It's made by the uh, pharma company Gilead. And uh, this drug has been, it's kind of a wonder drug. It's, it's kind of amazing. Um, it demonstrates a greater than 90% reduction in the risk of HIV transmission. And in some studies, it's pretty damn close to 100%. In mm -hmm. fact, some studies did show 100% reduction of HIV transmission, as in no HIV transmission occurred when people were taking PrEP daily, um, taking HIV, the, the uh, Truvada pill daily, which mm -hmm. is a pill, by the way. Um, can you use PrEP and Truvada kind of interchangeably? Yes. Currently, there's only one PrEP medication available. So, you, yeah, they're, they are interchangeable right do you, now. Do you think it'll be like Kleenex where there are like so many different versions of Kleenex, but you they're all Kleenex? Maybe, yeah. We, I guess time will tell. Uh, I, okay. I think Gilly would probably prefer that not to be the case. <laughs> uh, but then again... Uh, Adobe has not been very, had very good luck with preventing people from saying Photoshop uh, either <laughs> as a verb. So True. we'll see what happens there. Um, but yeah, so uh, PrEP is a pretty great drug. It, it's very well tolerated. It's pretty safe. Um, the main side effects associated with it are all pretty minor and they're all pretty much reversible. Uh, with some people, when they first start taking it, they'll get some appetite reduction. Um, there's some uh, reversible um very easily reversible uh, loss of bone density that has occurred in a very small number of people. Mm -hmm. But when you stop taking the drug, it bounces back completely fine. So you just, if that happens to you, your doctor monitors you for it, you just stop taking it. You're fine. Um, and that same thing uh, goes for um, a very minor risk of, uh, of kidney uh, damage or kidney uh, overwork, I would say, mm -hmm. um, because the kidney has to process the prep. Um, it's kind of the detoxification sort of, uh, sort of apparatus there. Okay. So, um, because of that, you also have to look out for, um, basically you're, you're, every three months, your doctor will take some blood from you and they're going to look for kidney, uh, signs of kidney, um, taxation. Basically, if your kidneys are overtaxed, your doctor will tell you, you might want to need to back off of the prep. Um, but again, mm -hmm. that's, that's quite rare. It's also reversible. So not, nothing hugely to be concerned about. Not a whole lot of other counterindications or reasons why you wouldn't mm -hmm. would be not able to take PrEP besides already having HIV, obviously. Right. Um, that's a pretty strong one. Um, <laughs> then you'd be, you'd be taking a different <clears throat> regimen of drugs. Right. PrEP is only two med. It's actually a combination of two antiretroviral medications. When you're actually have HIV, you take more. So this is not sufficient to treat HIV, oh. but it's, it's, it's sufficient to prevent it. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so this can be prescribed by any primary care doctor. Uh, you can also go to your public health clinic or anywhere. You know, you would go for probably for your STI uh, screening. They should be able to help you out or at least direct you to resources where a doctor could be prescribing this for you. Mm -hmm. um, and the other cool thing about being on PrEP, uh, besides the from 90% to 100% reduction in risk of HIV transmission, uh, is that uh, it ensures that you're going to be tested for STIs quarterly. Because as I mentioned, you have to go into your doctor every three months to get the prescription renewed uh, because of the risk of the, the kidney uh, damage. So right. while you're there, your doc what, what's been decided is that uh, while you're here anyway, we're already taking your blood. We might as well just do an STI test. So mm -hmm. uh, if you're someone who's on PrEP, they get STI tests every three months. This is what the doctor is going to order if you're on PrEP. So it's kind of a nice little 
uh, reminder to always go and get your uh, STI testing as well because you're already going to the doctor. Now, since the, I guess, um, release of Trivada, we'll say, there has been, you know, some, some people have said that the uptick in people that are reporting syphilis and gonorrhea you know, is a direct result of, well, I'm on prep, so I don't have to, you know, use a condom or practice safer sex habits. And I think that it's actually the inverse. With more people on prep, more people are required to be tested. And so it's not that more people are practicing, you know, less safe, you know, habits. It's more, hey, we're getting tested on a regular basis as opposed to maybe once a year, twice a year. Yeah, the problem there is correlation is not causation. Yeah. And, uh, or, you know, post hoc ergo proctor hoc, it doesn't really work. So the thing is, we don't know what the causal relationship is between people mm-hmm. being on prep and STI, certain STIs, uh, the prevalence of the STIs going up, right? Um, so what that actually could be, and what uh, a lot of people have kind of pushed back against that idea is, uh, as I just mentioned, if you're on prep, mm-hmm. you're forced to go get tested for STIs every three months. Many people might have gone much longer periods of time without testing prior mm-hmm. to being on PrEP. And so what we might actually be seeing is just increased surveillance for STIs, which means someone's getting tested more often, the more likely to pick up an infection. Therefore, mm-hmm. the number of reported infections goes up, but it's not that, that infection wouldn't have happened otherwise. It's just that we wouldn't have detected it otherwise. Right. So that's kind of a bit of a, a false increase in the numbers. People also make that case, for example, with autism, that autism screening has mm-hmm. increased. So therefore, the autism rate's going up. It's not necessarily true that autism is actually becoming more common. We don't actually know that. All we know is that we're detecting it more. Well, I mean, it's the law of averages. If you test more, you're going to find more. Exactly. It's exactly right. So, um, or some people call this law of big numbers or right, whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. So, uh, it, that definitely happens. You get some, you get some kind of, um, false increase in the numbers as a result of that. Now, it could also be that certain people are being promiscuous in a mm-hmm. way that's inappropriate. And I say that, um, but by that, what I mean is uh, inappropriate in the sense that they think that Truvada is going to protect them from everything, mm-hmm. and it doesn't. So Truvada is only approved, and the only thing it actually does, it is an anti-HIV retroviral medication, an anti-retroviral medication, I should say. So that means it's going to prevent you from getting HIV, and that is all it does. Um, slight proviso on that. There's also one study that shows that there's a pretty strong reduction in the transmission of herpes with people who are on uh uh, prep. And I'll talk about that a bit more in the herpes section of our podcast tonight. So just wait, look forward to that. Look forward to herpes, everybody. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> um, and so some people also uh, criticize prep for it being a kind of expensive. It is a really expensive drug. Um, however, if you uh, are in the United States and you have insurance, um, the uh, company who makes Truvada, Gilead, is willing to uh, actually cover your co-payments for you. Uh, because they're getting such large uh, amounts of money from your insurance company, uh, they don't seem to mind paying co-payments to get you to be on the drug. Um, it's kind of a little bit self-serving for them, but hey, it makes sense. So. That's actually really funny. I I don't think I've heard of any other kind of instance where uh, the, the pharmaceutical company will cover the copay for you. Just, I mean, it's good press for them, and it, they get money regardless. Yeah, I mean, they're getting, a, I think, a thousand some dollars per month for the medication so yeah. per person so if they're covering a 60 dollar copayment yeah. i think that's probably worth it to them it's pretty solid yeah Mine so well actually you had a hundred dollar deductible fox that he was also included in that the killer also picked up for, yeah, for koji they so they'll cover the deductible too if you still got a deductible left and on your you plan can get the card like while you're standing there it only takes like 10 minutes yeah you, oh. just, you literally just fill in your name and your address and they, they give you a little like card that you give to the pharmacist you and can they just leave it on your phone you don't even have to have it in, Real life. Exactly. So it's, it's pretty easy to do. And it's just, uh, 
we'll put, include a link in the show notes to where you can go for that copay assistance card. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if you're uh, one of those people who doesn't actually have insurance, uh, Gilead has a separate program that can actually just cover the entire cost of the medication if you're uh, in that kind of need situation. Mm-hmm. And then there are also some uh, free clinics and such that can also have an arrangement work out where they can potentially provide you with Truvada prep as well. Yeah, I would uh, recommend, especially if you're younger and you're kind of afraid of having to go through you know, your primary care physician, especially if your parents are still kind of, you know, they're responsible for your insurance. If you're in college, for instance, uh, if you look at um, resources available in your area for, um, you know, gay centers, um, some kind, there are a lot of like places, especially down in the South that I can recall where, you know, it's like a small house. that's like, you know, the gay resource for the city. I would look into those and see what kind of resources that they have, because if you're worried about like being sex shamed or having a doctor, you know, kind of criticize you for being gay, um, which can happen. Oh yeah, for it's, sure. Um, they'll have a lot of resources for gay-friendly doctors or trans-friendly doctors. Um, I would recommend looking into those resources, and you can typically just find them um, by searching your city and then like gay center. <laughs> speaking of, uh, I mean, speaking of the idea that your doctor can be kind of sex negative or um, you know sex shamey or LGBT negative, um, I work. With a lot of doctors, I, you know, went to school with a lot of med students. I have a PhD. I, I'm a medical writer. I work with doctors every day. Um, you know, a lot of people have this kind of mystique surrounding doctors. They kind of are get intimidated by them. They think they can't disagree with their physician or they can't, like, criticize them or, or you know, ever say no. Um, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Doctors are human beings. And here's a, kind of the way you should think about it. Um, you are in control when you are with your doctor. Your doctor works for you. Um, if you don't like what your doctor is saying, or you don't like uh, the way your doctor is treating you, you don't like the way your doctor won't order STI tests or disagrees with you or pushes back when you say that you want PrEP or tells you that you should just not have sex because that's the best way to prevent HIV. Um, if you're getting that kind of shit from your doctor, uh, you can fire your doctor. You can say, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not really comfortable continuing this relationship. I'm going to find another primary care physician. And you can walk out. And they can't do anything about that. And you can shop around until you find a doctor who is willing to take care of you properly. So keep in mind, your doctor works for you and you can fire your doctor if you Mm -hmm. need to do that. It's actually really good. I think that a lot of people, I mean, especially me, like doctors were, you know, the end all, say all, be all. And they know what they're talking about and they recommend this. Okay, well, I guess I got to do it. They know what they're talking about. I mean... Especially like after I came out and, you know, had that, you know, my entire ordeal with, you know, working in drag clubs and all that good stuff. Like you really begin to take notice of doctors that will kind of shame you like, oh, well, maybe you should just, you know, pray. I had a doctor tell me that once, like, maybe you should just pray and you'll be better. And I'm just like, maybe I'll find another doctor. <laughs> yeah. Or, I, you know, I've had a doctor tell me, oh, you don't actually need to get tested that often. You don't need to get tested this often. I'm like, no, yeah. I really do need to get tested this often. Yeah. I had a doctor tell me once, oh, you only need to get tested once a year. And I was like, um, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, with this particular doctor, I ended up using cheat codes because again, I have my PhD from the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia, which is like one of the top 10 med schools in the country. But anyway, um, when you name drop that, doctors tend to shut up and start listening rather than you get kind of, it's like you're ordering fast food at that point. They just, you just tell them what tests you want and they just take notes and then you get those tests. So that's, that's kind of using cheat codes, but, um, yeah. yeah. 
I look, do you want me to pull up the CDC website about MSM where I can tell you all the things that you're not doing correctly here? Like at that point, the doctor just, okay, what do you actually need? But, um, yeah, if you're not in that particular situation, um, yeah, just remember, like you can say, Hey, the CDC says if I have sex with other men, I should be getting tested this often. If I'm in a high risk patient group, I am, you need to test me. You can make that argument. They should listen to you. If they're not willing to listen to you at that point, fire them. And so I also get again, I know I've said it before, I highly recommend Planned Parenthood. Even if you, you know, you're you're not there for the actual, you know, parenthood portion, they do offer a lot of good um sex screening um tests and they also are able to prescribe you prep. Yeah, so, a lot of people are under the impression that they won't serve men. That's actually not uh, that true. No. Yeah, you can they're they're pretty actually pretty welcoming. So Yeah, and they do like they do the full plant panel too, so that's really nice. And they offer a lot of like they're fairly inexpensive and if you're in kind of a lower income bracket or if you have, you know, financial, you know, struggles, they're able to work with you and offer, you know, subsidized or even free testing. And uh, as Metrico alluded to earlier, there is also uh, in major, a lot of major metropolitan areas, uh, like in New York, we're very lucky to have the Callum Lord uh, Center, which mm-hmm. is a, a gay health uh, community center, basically. Uh, but a lot of major metro areas will also have a really big like LGBT health center that can yeah. probably um, help you out as well. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, just look for those resources. And if you're having trouble finding them, reach out to us and you know, it's, it's, we're fortunate enough to, you know, be in kind of a large metropolitan area that, uh, has a lot of resources and we can reach out, you know, to them and see if they know of anything. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we'll, you know, we'll try to work with you to help you find a way in order to better take care of your sexual health. Yeah. The last point I'm going to make about, uh, prep is that, uh, it's not an either or scenario. And I kind of alluded mm-hmm. to that earlier when I mentioned that it doesn't protect against uh, most other STIs with the potential exception of partial protection against herpes, but that's only one study and it's not on the label. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so you can also use it with condoms. There's no reason you can't use PrEP and condoms. At that point, you're reducing your risk for HIV anyway, super, super, super low because the condoms protecting you and then you've got the secondary barrier of the, of the PrEP. So that's, that's pretty much like you're not getting HIV. I use the calculator and I put in, okay, so I take Truvada and I wear condoms and my partner's on anti, you know, they're in their <laughs> medication. And like, it was like, the limit is not reached. There is no limit. Like they're like, the, the, that's like an asymptote right there. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was very confused. Yeah. That's tough. So you, that's making it very tough on the HIV virus at that point. So, um, I do know, and this is something where I have a little bit of information. So prep you know, is good for pre-exposure. Let's say that, you know, you happen to have sex with somebody or you suspect that you've been exposed to HIV. I mean, not to get too dark here, but let's say that you got drunk one night and woke up and your ass was really sore and you realized that you were raped. (laughs) Or it could be, you know, let's say that you're a medical professional and you're working on an individual that, you know, has HIV and for whatever reason, you accidentally get, you know, blood into your eyes or, you know, a sore that you have. There are, there is medication for that, um, post-exposure prophylaxis. Right. So this is actually different than PrEP, even though they sound very similar. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's similar in concept, it, except this is a much um, more stringent and uh, more hardcore, I would say, regimen of oh, antiretroviral yes. medications. So this is not quite the easy street that PrEP is. It's, it's going to have mm-hmm. some side effects. You're, you're not going to feel too good when you're taking this. But if you start it within 72 hours of your suspected exposure, it's very likely to prevent you from actually mm-hmm. developing a full-blown HIV infection. And it's 28 days of constant medication, and it makes you feel very sick. It's, I've had to take it before. You feel bloated and just, it, it, the side effects are rough. Like, you'll feel nauseous, you'll feel tired, you'll feel achy. But this is about 90% effective. If you come into contact with somebody that has HIV and you suspect that, okay, I might, I'm at high risk for contracting HIV, 90% effective in preventing HIV from actually infecting you. Um, that being said, this is really only for emergency situations, and it can be rather expensive. A lot of insurances will not cover this. Um, that being said, the CDC does happen to have a lot of good contacts with um, the the uh, pharmaceutical companies, and a lot of the companies will work with you in order to get you medication. And much like the way that they do with PrEP, it's um, they'll be able to kind of get you a fast pass because you do have only 72 hours they'll be able to fast pass it to where you can get some kind of a free uh, trial or some kind of a subsidized trial where you can take the medication and, you know, not contract HIV. And uh, fortunately, under the Affordable Care Act, the, the PEP situation has gotten a bit better. So a lot of insurances mm-hmm. are now mandated by the federal government to, to cover PEP, which is good. Take that, Hobby Lobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, th- thanks, Obama. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Ugh, what a jerk. Um, so let's say that you're now... Uh, unfortunately, despite your best efforts and all the stuff we told you, um, something slipped up and you are in the unfortunate situation of having acquired HIV. How will you actually know that? Well, Mm -hmm. I mean, eventually if you're still getting tested as frequently as you should be, um, which should be, you know, if you're on prep every three months, if you're not on prep, I mean, CDC recommends yearly at least. Um, but if you're a sexually active and non-monogamous man who has sex with men, probably, um, every few months is good. Every three mm-hmm. to six months is probably good. Um, if you're having lots of partners and you want to, you, some people like to do it between, every time they switch partners, which is also a, a good practice. Again, assuming you're actually leaving that, that time window in between partners to actually mm-hmm. pick up the HIV, um, it has to be, you know, that, that, uh, two to, two, know, to, two to three two months, to three months yeah. two, two weeks to three months, two weeks sorry. to three months, <laughs> yeah, depending, on, depending <laughs> on which HIV test you're getting, yeah, right. two weeks to three months. So you want to make sure you're leaving that window so you can actually pick up the HIV, um, some people actually like to get two tests, one at the two week mark and that should be negative and that should be negative again at three months. And that's pretty damn definitive at that point that you don't have HIV. Mm-hmm. So some people, if, if you are really, really want to be want, really wanting to be careful and making sure that you are HIV negative, but for switching to a new partner, that would be the most stringent way you could get tested. Probably. Right, right, right. Um, and if you want to be fluid bonded to one person at a time and that's the way you want to do it, that's legitimate. That's how you would do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and by fluid bonded, in case that term is unclear for, for you guys, we've used it before a couple of times, but I, I like to define it because yeah. it's a little weird. Yeah. You use fluid um, bond, I use fluid transfer. Yeah. yeah. But a fluid bond is when you're not using any protection with someone. You're, you're actually yeah. just exposing them directly to your fluids. So that means you're, you're bonding your fluids together. You're, yeah. you're mixing your fluids. Yeah. You're coming inside of them. Yes. Directly without any barriers <laughs> to put it bluntly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. So uh, a lot of people don't actually develop these symptoms of acute HIV infection. Uh, for those that do, they often develop what's called influenza-like illness, 
Um, that's like um, aches, uh, fever, chills, you know, basically Schools, standard, yeah. like standard, you know, I, I'm sick type feeling. Um, that can be HIV. Not to say that you are feeling that right now. You have HIV. We don't want to like panic anyone. You might just be having con cry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think Koji's got a bit of that right now, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So in many other people, they don't develop those influenza-like symptoms. They actually basically skip over the acute phase. They have an inapparent HIV infection, and they might not notice if they weren't getting tested regularly for HIV. They won't notice mm-hmm. if they were infected until they developed basically full-blown AIDS symptoms somewhere down the line, which can be even up to a you know a couple of years after they've been been infected. So, and during that time when they're not getting any HIV medication, that's when someone is their most uh, infectious. There's tons of HIV in their blood. There's tons of HIV, HIV in their semen. Mm-hmm. And so they're very infectious at the, during that time. So that's why, again, you want to make sure you're getting tested frequently because you don't want to miss that kind of infection and inadvertently expose someone to HIV uh, who you're sleeping with. So be very careful about that. Now, HIV is one of those things where there really is no cure, right? I mean, there's no cure for HIV at this point. At this point, there's a lot of really active research about that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something called the CRISPR-Cas9 system that's showing a lot of promise in actually being able to edit out the HIV genome from infected cells, which is pretty awesome. And if you guys want to ask me about that at some point, you can geek out with me about virology because it's pretty <laughs> cool. But uh, for the purposes of right now and actual treatments that are available, no, there's no cure for HIV. Uh, what we do have is highly active antiretroviral therapy, or HART. And this is just basically taking antiretroviral drugs for life. And um, it keeps the virus really suppressed, as I mentioned. There won't actually be much active replication going on. It's just going to be in a few cells inside of your body, but the virus is still there. And if you stopped the antiretroviral treatment, it would come back with a vengeance. So you're stuck taking antiretrovirals for life at that point. And it tends to be, I mean, I know back in the day it was like five to six pills, five to six times a day. Nowadays, I think it's a little bit fewer pills now. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. So the, the, the treatment's been refined quite a bit. Now it's usually, it can be down to like one or two pills a day at this point. So it's, it's not quite as arduous as it used to be to take it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know... And you might think, oh, well, it's not a big deal. I just have to take a pill every day. What's the big deal? Uh, it's kind of still a big deal because, um, you know, there's a stigma associated with it, which is unfortunate. Um, you're going to have to be disclosing your status to people for the rest of your life. That can be really unpleasant mm-hmm. and have psychological impacts on people because it, it can be because cause depression. Um, there's also some issues with things called um, age-related dementia, which even for people who are on antiretroviral therapy, they can still develop some neurological uh, issues later in life. And uh, so it's, it's, you know, you might not die of AIDS the way that people did in the 80s and the early 90s, but it's still not a good thing to have. Um, so if you can avoid it, you should. Uh, if you're unfortunate enough to acquire HIV, it's not a death sentence, but it's still not, it's still a chronic disease you have to manage for the rest of your life. Yeah. And that's really the big thing. Like a lot of sex ed, you know, they just say, well, when you get HIV, you're going to die. The good thing is, is that you're not, you can live with HIV and you can live a very healthy, active life and it is, it's treatable. And it's even a sexually active life. It's not, oh, yes. It doesn't mean the end of your, end of sex for you. It does mean there's some complications and some mm-hmm. explanation and some discussion that has to happen before sex. But as we mentioned, if you're on your antiretrovirals and your partner's willing to take some precautions, mm-hmm. you can still have sex. Oh, yeah. Just, you know, there is still a very large stigma associated with it. So, I mean, best practice, you want to try to avoid HIV. If you have it, if you contract it, it's not the end of the world for you. Right, exactly. So that's about it on HIV. Uh, Our next wonderful topic is going to be chlamydia. 
Chlamydia is such a fun word. It looks no way the way that it's pronounced. Like, I can't, I can't. It's so strange, but it is, it's kind of a rough, rough, rough STI. Yeah, sure. Um, rough? Yeah. Um, no, it, it's not just for dogs. People can get it too. Um, but yeah, it's a, uh, it can be acquired in a variety of ways. Um, it is a, uh, a bacterial infection. Uh, you can acquire it from anal sex. You can acquire it through vaginal sex. Um, you can acquire it through oral sex. So that's actually, for chlamydia, not the most common infectious route. Um, and it's also a bit weird. You can actually get chlamydia in your eyes, too. If you're getting some hard facials from someone who's uh, got chlamydia going on, that can that can cause some eye issues. Hmm. So you don't want to get uh, chlamydia in your eyes. That, that can be a pretty nasty infection. See, when I was in sex ed, we were only told that it was through anal or vaginal. Nothing else. See, I'm learning things now, too. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, um, if, unlike, like, gonorrhea is once commonly... I feel like people often say chlamydia and gonorrhea as if they're, like, interchangeable sometimes. Yeah. Um, they actually are different. Like, uh, I'll get to this when we talk about gonorrhea, but gonorrhea is actually much more commonly acquired orally. Chlamydia mm-hmm. is not so happy being in your muzzle, so it's not oh. it's not going to be, you know, all that uh, huge there. But I want to draw your uh, attention to a number that's very different than the numbers we were talking about with HIV. Now, I was talking about HIV. We said that even for like the most like likely way of getting HIV, which is by bottoming, uh, which is the most risky thing you can do in terms of HIV transmission, your odds of getting HIV per sex act were like 138 in 10,000 exposures directly to HIV, right? With chlamydia, uh, per exposure, your odds of getting chlamydia are 45%. Ooh. So, yeah, that's basically one and two. So, yeah, this is much more easily transmissible. Chlamydia doesn't fuck around. Like, <laughs> chlamydia gets in where it fits, and holy cow, it's not joking around. Exactly. So, this is not like, oh, I can just, I can, I, it's not a big deal. If you've got chlamydia, we'll be fine. Nuh uh, not happening. You're going to get chlamydia. Um, yeah, so. 45% of the time. 45% of the time. <laughs> per per sex act. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so you want to be using protection here. Um, so how do you get tested for chlamydia? Um, one thing to keep in mind is, you know, we talk about there's being multiple routes of infection. Um, there is a, a swab test that can be performed and also a urine test. But I want to point out something here. People often think about STIs as if they're just infected or not infected. With things like bacterial infections, you think, think about it more like different parts of your body being colonized with that bacteria. Because the bacteria isn't really going systemic in your entire body. It's not like if you get it in your uh, anus, it's going to suddenly jump into your penis. Those, those, those body compartments are actually pretty isolated from each other. So you can actually have chlamydia in different places in your body. Um, and you want to make sure you're testing all the places that you use during sex. Because otherwise, you know, let's say that you only get the urine test. That means that there's no chlamydia in your penis or your, uh, in your vagina, potentially. Um, that's great. But let's say you're also having anal sex. Maybe you developed a chlamydia infection in your anus, but you didn't test your anus. You only tested your urine, which, or you only swabbed your penis, or you only swabbed your cervix. Uh, in that case, that negative isn't really valid because the next person you have anal sex with is going to get chlamydia. So you're not actually negative. You just didn't test the area where you're, where you're actively infected. So you want to make sure that you're getting, when you, when you request a chlamydia test, you specify to your physician that, hey, I, you know, I have receptive anal intercourse. I have receptive vaginal intercourse. I have oral sex. I have penetrative uh, intercourse. I use my mm-hmm. penis. I need to have all of these areas tested 
for chlamydia because they could all be infected potentially. So this won't come up on any kind of a blood test that you get, correct? I mean, some it is technically possible to have a blood test for chlamydia, but that's not that's not the first line. No one's no one's mm-hmm. doing a blood test for chlamydia. It's like the way that you test for chlamydia. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you try hard enough, you can test in your blood by using things like PCR and other other genetic tests that are very uh-huh. sensitive. But again, this is not that you're not going to the crime lab here. We're just doing you're going to your primary <laughs> care physician. They're test they're doing run of the mill testing. They're, just they're doing a swab, swab test. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that ends up being a culture basically. They're just growing off the bacteria to see if it shows up basically. Okay. Um, yeah, so, um, you want to make sure you're ordering, again, swab of the penis or urine test. Urine test is more common. Uh, swab of the anus, and then, uh, if you're using your anus, and then the cervix, swab of the cervix, if you've got one of those. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and then, again, we have to, when you're testing, we also have to worry about the test window. So the window for these tests is, uh, usually within one to four weeks of infection, so it's not quite as uh, bad as with HIV where you're looking at two weeks to three months. So, um, yeah. But again, if you're, you know, looking right before the con and you just had sex, you know, with a grinder hookup four days before the con and you got your test and it says that you're negative, you don't actually know that. So, again, keep in mind that the test is only so good as, you know, to the last time you had sex. And if you had unprotected sex with somebody very close to that test, you don't really know that you're negative. You might be testing a false negative there. Right, exactly. So risk reduction strategies uh, for chlamydia. Proper condom use, or perfect condom use, as we talked about at the top of the show, uh, can reduce your risk of chlamydia. Uh, but, you know, it's not actually 100% risk reduction. Uh, a lot of people kind of want to pretend like it is, but even mm-hmm. if you're using condoms, uh, chlamydia is a bacteria, and it can get around things. It's, it can get places. You can actually have it not necessarily just at the tip of your penis. You can potentially expose somebody by other routes. Now, in this case, it is predominantly shed by direct contact with, you know, fluids, but it's still possible. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if, you know, foreplay's happening, there's pre-cum getting places, you know, you know mm. this, this kind of stuff happens. So there, there, it is a pretty strong risk reduction, but various studies have come back with different numbers on that risk reduction. And again, these are mostly heterosexual studies, so take with a grain of salt if you're a man who has sex with men. But um, the risk reduction is anywhere between 15% and 100%. And that's a pretty damn big range. So we're not talking about absolute reduction of risk here. That's like when Comcast says, we have a scheduled you know, appointment with you. We'll be there sometime tomorrow between the hours of 10 a.m. and next week. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So, you know, we'd like to hope it's closer to that 100% number. And there's different methodologies being used in these different tests. So, you know, they're not all being done the same way. But again, there's a range. So it's not, the, my, the takeaway message there is that it's not necessarily 100%. So you don't think, oh, you know, we're using condoms. I'm not going to get chlamydia. It's still possible to get chlamydia. Even if the condom doesn't break, even if nothing else happens, it's still theoretically possible to get chlamydia. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in terms of symptoms, fortunately, it's not necessarily the most symptomatic uh, infection. Uh, it's often asymptomatic uh, in, in men, for example, um, can also be asymptomatic in women. Uh, when there are symptoms, they generally involve genital pain, um, usually a, a discharge, kind of a funky discharge from your urethra or your your, your pee slit, if you want to use you know those, those terms. Um, <laughs> pee slit? <laughs> yes. Wow. We're breaking it down here. We're breaking it down. We might, is, is, that, is that the medical term, we, Dr. Doc? We, I think it is. It is, yes. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I'm thinking, you know, we might have some non-English native speakers listening to the show who urethra might be a hard word to understand. Okay. You know, pee slit. Pretty basic. We'll okay. keep it basic here. Um, 
But yeah, so, you know, you, it can involve pain discharge, particularly during urination. You can have some painful mm-hmm. urination going on. Um, if you're infected via your anus, um, those tend to be asymptomatic for the most part. It can involve discomfort and discharge, but that's pretty rare. Uh, Come on. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> I'm just trying to think, like, wow. No, it's, it's. I mean, that, that, oof. Yeah, that's like, a, those are pretty, like, that's when you're really, like, heavily infected that you can start getting the discharge from your anus, and that's not a good time. Yeah, no. But, I mean, fortunately, because it is bacterial, um, I mean, it, it's just an antibacterial, like, antibiotic, right? Yeah, so this we can cure pretty easily, fortunately. And, uh, yeah, we, it's just an, a very brief antibiotic regimen. You take the antibiotics that your doctor prescribes mm-hmm. you for the time duration that the doctor prescribes the antibiotics. You, you generally abstain from sex. Mm-hmm. until the infection is cleared and you come back negative, and then you can go back to your daily business of getting down to business. <laughs> See, yeah. one time I thought I was infected, and uh turns out I just had a kidney infection, a UTI. So, <laughs> Right, and that's the thing, UTI symptoms are very similar to the potential symptoms of chlamydia. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was it was one of those where, like, wow, it, it hurts to pee. Hmm... Yeah. Well, <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> oddly enough, you know, people don't think about urinary tract infections as being STIs, but actually the most frequent way of requiring an STI is actually sex. Yeah. So, yeah, but those aren't really thought of that way because you don't, can't really give one person another one, you know. But. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> that would be that would be really bad if you could. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess if you're peeing back and forth. That sounds like a Cards Against Humanity card. That, that sounds like something you would see in, like, a Rick and Morty episode. <laughs> <laughs> something like that, yeah. Is there a TV show that they would tune in? Yeah. <laughs> I need you. back to pissing back and forth forever. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you know, it, it's... it's, it's uh, Chlamydia isn't really a, I mean, it's, I think that it's, I mean, it's, it's so treatable. Yeah. But a lot of the, the thing is, is that yet again, there's not a lot of information, especially for men that have sex with other men. Like, yeah, for sure. Like, I don't know what this is. And the other thing to keep in mind is it's often asymptomatic uh, Mm -hmm. with, with that situation. So, um, but that doesn't mean you don't want to treat it and you don't want to be passing it along to other people. Yeah. So you want to make sure you're looking at, looking after yourself. So constant vigilance through proper testing. Get tested. Yep, <laughs> exactly. So gonorrhea is our next baddie on the list. Um, now this one is um, pretty acquired by, again, pretty standard routes. Fluid transfer uh, via the vaginal uh, route of entry, via the anus if you're having anal sex, and via uh, oral sex or mm-hmm. you know if you're using your, your, your mouth. Um, in this case... Again, similar to chlamydia, you want to make sure you're testing all the different uh, canals and orify that you're potentially using during sex. So if you are using your penis, swab your penis or get the urine test. Um, If you are using your anus during sex, get your anus swabbed. If you're using your cervix, uh, you know, test each one you have. That's basically the rule. Um, And this one is, again, fairly short testing window, about one to three weeks after infection. Okay. Um... And I'm, I'm just going to imagine that it's it's the same kind of prevention, you know. You want to use a condom, that sort of thing, right? Yeah. Uh, here again, yeah. Proper condom use, again, or proper condom use, depending on what you term you want to use. Risk reduction, again, anywhere from 13% to 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, and some studies actually, sh- and, and I kid you not, some studies have shown that condom use actually raises your risk of gonorrhea. Uh, those are not talked about because no one wants to talk about those. Huh. But yeah, that, that there's a couple studies that show like 120% risk of uh, of, <laughs> of gonorrhea transmission with condom use. That's so, intense. Yeah, exactly. But that's how science works, right? You have to test things lots of times because you get 
spurious, weird results sometimes. Hmm. But these studies do exist. It's kind of funny to go and read those sometimes if you're, if you're curious. But now, gonorrhea, is this more, like, you mentioned that with, um, that, 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 it's, 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 is it more capable of being transmitted orally it than chlamydia? It absolutely mm-hmm. is. And so this is where we also, like, start talking about dental dams, because oral transmission is important here. So, uh, yeah, you can consider using a dental dam if you're worried about oral transmission. Um, theoretically, you could also use a condom during oral sex, but I really, I don't think I've ever met anyone who does that. Uh, no, neither have I. And I mean, I used to work in a nightclub for many <laughs> years where lots of people had sex. And I mean, it's a good idea maybe, but at the same time, like kind of like what you said earlier, that if you feel the need to, you know, and I personally belong to that same school of thought where if I feel the need to have my partner, you know, my sex partner to use a condom for oral sex, Maybe I'm just not going to have sex with him in the first place. Yeah, that's kind of that's where I stand, but that's a personal preference yeah. on my part. Personal, you know, assumed, you know, risk. <laughs> yeah, everyone's got their own risk benefit analysis to do. So yeah. that's that's the story with uh, risk reduction with gonorrhea. Now, symptoms here: uh, gonorrhea tends to be um, more symptomatic, I would say, in men than, than chlamydia. That kind of like loose and fast with the with the statistics there, but um, some men still have no symptoms at all with gonorrhea infections. Uh, men who do have uh, symptoms will experience something like a burning sensation when, you, when urinating, uncomfortable urination, um, a white, yellow, or green discharge from the penis, um, painful or swollen testicles uh, can occur with a pretty serious, like a, like a pretty strongly established infection. Uh, this is less common, though. And in women, the symptoms are pretty rare. You don't actually get symptomatic infections in women very often. Huh. Um, but so here again... Uh, it, because of the involvement of the testicles, which can happen, uh, there's some risk to, uh, to your, uh, whether you're going to be sterilized if you mm-hmm. have an uncontrolled uh, gonorrhea infection for a very long time. Now, if you're an exclusively homosexual individual, that might not be your you know biggest concern, but I mean, it's a factor if you ever want to have children. You want to make sure you're not having an uncontrolled gonorrhea infection for long periods of time. Um, treatment. Uh, again, it's bacterial, so uh, we can cure it with antibiotics. That's possible to do. Uh, there's a bit of a proviso on that, though, and that's that uh, antibiotic resistance is on the rise for gonorrhea. So there actually are multidrug-resistant strains of gonorrhea in circulation now that actually are pretty difficult to get rid of. So be, be aware of that. Yeah, I read it. Uh, I heard about like super gonorrhea and how it's going to destroy us all and sterilize us. Yeah, it hasn't taken over the world yet, exactly. But it, there are pockets of it out there. So, I mean, again, don't just think, oh, I can take antibiotics and this is no big deal. Uh, it could actually be a pretty big deal, especially if the antibiotic resistant strains take take a pretty strong uh, hold. So, uh, just be on the lookout for for news on that. Hmm. No, it's good to know. I mean, it's, it's whenever people think of like, oh, well, it's, you know, a bacterial infection. Well, good news. I've got amoxicillin. So, ha <laughs> Worst case, I'll just let some bread mold and I'll Louis Pasteur this bitch, you know, <laughs> like it's not that bad, but I mean, you know, it, it's, it's good to know. Is the same true for, for, um, for chlamydia? Are there bacterial resistant? Drug resistant strains are not as big of a deal yet with chlamydia. Okay. Got there. They, do theoretically exist, but like it's actually like happening with gonorrhea. Whereas oh, okay. with chlamydia, it's more of a theoretical risk. So it's track. So it's not really trackable. Yeah, not yet. Yeah. Okay. At least from a public health or epidemiological perspective, it's not huh. so much yet. Yeah. All right. Good to know. Yeah. So our next baddie, moving on down the line, is syphilis, 
And this might even sound like, oh, what is this, World War II? Like, you know... George Washington. Venereal disease. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's still around. It's still kicking. It's actually less common than gonorrhea and chlamydia. Hmm. But it is it is out there um, still. And again, you can get this one uh, through vaginal, oral, and anal sex. Um, any of those. You say uh, vaginal. Vaginal. I know. It's, I keep thinking like vaginal. And, uh, I mean, no, it's, it's, I'm just curious. It's my Midwestern accent. No, Don't I'm, worry I'm about curious. it. Is that actually, like, is that a, a way of pronouncing it? Like, yeah. Okay, no. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, no. Not, I'm not very conscious of that. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's vaginal. I, I should catch myself. Okay, no. it's it's. I, I didn't want to, like, make fun of you, but I'm like, <laughs> is that, is, have I been pronouncing it incorrectly? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's just, it makes you sound that much more gay. That's, that's... Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I don't vaginal. know anything about the vagina, so vaginal... Okay, for the record, I, I'm homoflexible, and I have had sex with women, and I've, eat, uh, I've eaten pussy, okay? Gross. So I... Yeah. Mm, puss, puss. Mm. Yeah. I, I'm gayer than... I'm, I'm not as gay as you guys, okay? I'm straighter than you guys. The straightest thing in the world is to have sex with another man. Just True. think about that. Yeah. You have to get them into submission? No, there is no act straighter than that. Maybe Greco-Roman wrestling. Yeah, I know, right? It's, it's pretty hot. Mm. One down for another. I'm with you on that, brother. But, oh. but anyway... Uh, <clears throat> back to syphilis, everybody. Back to syphilis. And the vaginas. So, and the vaginas. <laughs> or whatever I said before. I, and I'm really subconscious about that. Thanks, ah, guys. You're welcome. Anyway. So, yeah. Um, any of the same entry routes, mm-hmm. basically still a risk for syphilis. Um, there's a difference here with syphilis, though. And that's that this one in particular is... Contra- uh, you can contract this one with direct contact with a syphilis sore, which is one of the symptoms that can occur with a syphilis infection. This is a sore that can be present on the penis, it can be present on the vagina, it can be present on the anus, it can be present on the lips, or on the mouth. So if you have direct contact with a sore, wherever it appears on the skin, that can transmit syphilis. So let's say you're wearing a condom, but you've got a syphilis sore on your penis that's not covered by the condom. That can transmit syphilis. Or let's say that you have a condom on, but you are just hardcore making out. That could also be another transmission route. If, this, if the sore, if is, the sore yeah. is within your mouth or on your lips. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I would imagine there's no real condom for the interior of your mouth, short of like a dental dam, maybe? Or using a FC2 condom with your mouth. I don't, I don't recommend this, gentlemen. Yeah, please yeah. don't engage in breath play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's like a bad idea. So uh, we're not going to go with that one. Yeah. But... Um, so, yeah, again, condoms can be effective here at reducing risk, but this is, they're less effective with syphilis than they are with gonorrhea and chlamydia and HIV because of this risk of being exposed to this, the syphilitic sore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so not entirely preventable through condom use by any means. It's less preventable than gonorrhea and chlamydia. Right. Um, so this is where the phrase, check it before you wreck it, comes in. <laughs> um, That's adorable. I love it. Yeah. So, but like you want, you might want to like do some Googling and like make sure you haven't eaten recently and make sure you're sitting down, but you can Google syphilitic sore and see some very, um, unpleasant pictures of people with syphilis sores on their, their genitals. And it's, it's gonna, yeah, it's not pretty, but you should at least know what they look like. So when you're going down on somebody or about to put someone's dick somewhere or put your dick somewhere, you at least know what they look like. We will not be linking to those pictures because no. But Google is your friend or your enemy, depending on how you look at it. It's there. it's it's your short term enemy, long term friend. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, check it before you wreck it, gentlemen and uh, ladies. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's how that works. Uh, now for syphilis, the uh, 
testing is generally speaking a blood test. Um, that's how mm-hmm. it's, that's the standard anyway. That like if you go to your doctor and get a syphilis test, it probably has to be the blood test at this point. Um, that's possible to detect syphilis at about one to two weeks of infection at the earliest, but you're definitively can get tested at six weeks uh, for this one. That's the, that's the window we're talking about. Um, and we kind of talked about a bit of the symptoms already, uh, but the, the primary uh, infection uh, symptom is going to be uh, a sore at the site of the infection. That's usually painless and it'll last for about three to six weeks and that will resolve itself. And you might think, oh, the sore went away. The syphilis is gone. No. Jazz hands. No, no, no. It is not gone. It's actually just, you're now in the secondary phase of the infection. So the syphilis, you still got it. It's still your buddy. Um, you now will be developing uh, some other wonderful symptoms, including skin rashes, sores, and our buddy influenza-like illness again. Now, the if you're in the secondary stage, will the sores themselves still be present at the site of infection, or will they spread? Uh, in this case, it's actually more of a generalized rash. It can be anywhere in the body, um, mm-hmm. and you can get sores at the site of infection and in other places. Okay. So it's basically just, uh, yeah, it's like symptom potpourri at that point. It's, oh. it's a lot of fun. Ooh. Yeah. So... Ideally, you don't get to the second stage, though. You'd like to hope that you caught it before you got there. And if you get to the secondary stage, I sure hope you catch it, because, like, holy crap, you've got rashes all over your body and stuff. Um, <laughs> it's leprosy. Don't worry about it. Yeah, no. Like, you should you should see your doctor. Like, this is not... Yeah, like, seriously, go, go see your doctor. Yeah. But, no, if you make it to that point, yeah. Uh, if you somehow manage to not get it treated then, this probably... Like, this doesn't happen a whole lot anymore in the United States, because we generally catch it by this point, but... Let's say you somehow don't. Um, mm-hmm. You now go into a latent stage where the uh, wonderful uh, syphilis bacteria can persist in your body for like 10 to 30 years. Ooh. Yeah. And you can still be infectious during that time, though less so. Um, and then it'll just come back. And when it comes back, it's it's a nasty mofo. Um, at that point, it's going to give you uh, paralysis, uh, muscle uh, spasms, uh, other disorders, uh, of the musculoskeletal system. Uh, it can cause madness. It can cause dementia and even death. So don't get there if you can avoid that one. The late stage of syphilis <laughs> is not fun. So I've also heard like it can potentially cause like blindness. And I mean like a lot of like additional neurological oh, damage. Oh yeah, it's like the neurological damage, musculoskeletal <laughs> damage, all that stuff for I mean, sure. It's a bad mamajama, so I mean, I'm not gonna I, I didn't dwell on all the late stage symptoms just because again, like you shouldn't be getting there. Like that yeah. that you'd have to try pretty hard. But Yeah, but I mean it, be aware. The reason that I know that is because George Washington um, had syphilis <laughs> and the the stories of like his later life and like his descent to syphilitic madness really is quite fascinating. Yes, and unfortunately he did not have uh, access to antibiotics. This is actually uh, one mm-hmm. of the first major diseases that was I w- not quite eradicated, but knocked down in, in severity and threat quite thoroughly by antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's just a pretty basic you know, shot of penicillin and you're good to go with, uh, with this one. So um, that one's pretty easy to treat. So our next uh, STI that we're going to be getting into is herpes, and this is, I'd say, a bit of a controversial STI. It actually uh, created a bit of a uh, debate <laughs> at our panel uh, at uh, Furthermore. Yeah, it, was, it actually got slightly heated, actually, whether or not, you know, getting tested for herpes is super-duper important, um, simply because of the fact that a lot of people have herpes, apparently. Yeah, so that's the thing. Um, you know, it's, there's a big stigma attached to herpes, 
And I think a lot of people tend to think that it's um, the stigma associated with it is a, a bit larger than it should be based on how common it is and how for the majority of people who have herpes, it's really not a major um, influence on their lives mm -hmm. uh, negatively or positively. I mean, it won't expect it to be positive, but, you know, some people like that thing kind of thing. Bug chasers exist. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, assuming you're not one of those, it's, you know, it's can be pretty neutral at least. If not, you know, it's not super negative. But there, uh, HSV, to be clear, uh, is herpes simplex virus. It causes herpes. It actually exists in two different uh, types. There's HSV type 1 and HSV type 2. Uh, HSV type 1 is generally thought of as being the oral type of herpes that can cause like a mouth sore. Uh, like, you know, you, you might get, you know, say, you know, oh, my aunt, you know, kissed me when I was a kid and I, I got the, I got herpes and I get the little the cold sore type sore mm -hmm. on my lips occasionally. Um, and that is actually super prevalent. So about between 54% and 62% of individuals in the United States already have HSV-1. And so when more than half of people have it, it's kind of like... Eh. I mean, yeah, exactly. Eh. Unless you're like immunocompromised and, and, and herpes would be a big deal for you, which is, that does happen. Oh, yes. Um, for sure. And then you, you should be careful about herpes. I don't want to make it seem like it's a complete non-issue, but you, you want to, you know, not treat it like it's a, you know, really like major problem unless you are one of those people who's immunocompromised. Um, HSV2 is generally thought of as being the genital type of herpes. And this one's also super common. Is present in uh, 16 to 22% of United States adults. Um, so again, one in five-ish, that's a lot of people. Um, and again, most of those people, it's not a huge deal. In fact, something like 95% of people who have HSV2 have no idea they have mm -hmm. HSV2. That's how little it affects their lives. Right, it doesn't present itself with any kind of uh, symptoms or anything of that nature. Yeah, no flare-ups. Right, exactly. It's just there. Uh, chilling. So, mm -hmm. um, but again, for some people, they're immunocompromised. It's a big deal for them. Then it's a big deal. So, mm -hmm. uh, and one thing I should point out, it was thought for a while that, you know, HSV-1 was oral and HSV-2 was genital. We now know that there's actually pretty extensive crossover between those two. So you can get HSV-1 in your genitals and you can get HSV-2 on your mouth. So there's really no reason to really think that one or the other is, you know, better or worse to have or not have. Mm -hmm. um, they're both herpes. They're both, they can both cause similar symptoms depending on your uh, immunocompromised status and such. So, mm -hmm. you know, both are, both are herpes. Um, how do you get herpes? Uh, this one is just skin to skin contact. So we're not really talking about at this point, mucosal secretions um, or that, or, or, or semen being the, the route of transmission. So again, here condoms aren't going to be hundred percent effective because you can have herpes virus being shed from skin that is not covered by the condom. You can have it in your groin area or your, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the area around your anus uh, or anything like that. And that those yeah. things can touch um, the area around your vagina. So um, in that case, condom's not going to, not going to do it for you. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I had an ex who actually um, contracted um, HSV2 through anal intercourse with somebody that had, um, he just like it completely just out of the random wearing a condom. Everything was fine and good. And then, you know, two months down the line, just so I'm kind of in a spot of trouble right now. I mean, it's, it's the thing is, is that, you know, he had always practiced safe sex 
you know, everything with that encounter was best practice. Everybody, you know, followed every golden rule imaginable. It's just, unfortunately, you know, the guy that he was with never had any presentable signs. And even with a condom, you know, he got genital warts. So, I mean, it was kind of an unfortunate sort of thing. Maybe his partner should have been tested, though, right? And that's the problem with the skin-to-skin type um, mm-hmm. disorder, diseases. It's when the skin-to-skin kind of isn't going to do it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so risk reduction, condom, yes, can help reduce the risk. Dental dams also can reduce the risk, but because it is skin to skin and we've got lots of skin, yeah. um, we can't really, uh, can't really say that it's going to be hundred percent effective. Now, um, if you are using condoms, there, there are some studies, again, these are generally with heterosexual couples, but there are some pretty large clinical uh, studies that look at herpes transmission rates and uh, with couples who are having sex, you know, at their standard rate, um, over an eight-month period, with nearly perfect condom use, the rate of transmission in those couples was four percent in, in a study. So, again, it's not like it's it's not it's not a, it, this mm-hmm. is we're getting back towards like more of the the uh, HIV territory in terms of like herpes doesn't actually spread all that well. We kind of think of it as being highly contagious, but it it isn't the most contagious um, mm-hmm. STI. So 4% risk over eight months of sex with nearly perfect condom use. So that's not horrific. Yeah. It's a risk, but it's, it's not, it's not, you know, 45% or what did I say? Like 50%, 50% practically yeah. per exposure. This is not 50% per exposure. So, um, you know, one avoidance strategy is, uh, herpes is the most transmissible when someone is having an outbreak. Uh, and an outbreak is when they're actually showing like a herpes type, uh, rash or, or, or marks mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, kind of just redness, your skin irritation, all those sorts of things. You know, people often don't realize herpes is herpes because it can look like razor bumps. It can look yeah. like things like that. Maybe um, it's a pimple. Yeah, exactly. Or ingrown hair. Yeah. And so it's really, it's actually kind of hard to tell herpes from a lot of these other sort of this red, redness, irritated bumps that you can get on your skin. Uh, but that could potentially be herpes. Um, however, even if you're asymptomatic, it's still possible to shed herpes or to mm-hmm. transmit herpes. Um, so while your transmission is less when you're not symptomatic, it's still possible. Um, so that's avoiding sex during an outbreak is by no means foolproof. I do actually have a question. You've been using the term shed a lot. Could you, could you kind of go into that? Cause like when I hear shed, I think of like fur. <laughs> sure. As furry as I imagine you would. <laughs> so when you talk about viral shedding, it's, um, I guess a bit of virologist speak, but it's just, uh, when a virus is being, uh, exuded or put out by a certain part of the body. So mm-hmm. if you're shedding virus, let's say from the skin of your penis, that means that virus is present in the skin of your penis and it's okay. able to be transmitted that way. Um, that means the virus is being shed. It just means, mm-hmm. that, you know, similar to like the idea of fur kind of come falling off of you. It means like the virus is falling off of you in that area, oh. basically. Cause I've never heard that term before. Like that's actually really good to know. There you go. Huh. So yes. So the, the technical term for when you're having, you can transmit the virus when you aren't symptomatic is asymptomatic shedding. Okay. Now you know. Um, so yeah. So if you aren't going to have sex with someone who is known to be have HSV, either they know they have outbreaks or they've been tested and they know that they have HSV, um, you can also choose to only have sex with them uh, when they are taking an ant- their antiviral therapy for uh, herpes. And so the, there's a daily antiviral available for this, similarly to what is available for HIV. And in this case, that's going to be acyclovir, or the brand name Valtrex. 
And um, in this case, when you take Valtrex, that also actually reduces the amount of HSV that you're shedding, uh, similarly to what we were talking about with HIV and the idea of being the undetectable. Uh, it's not quite as good as that. So again, getting back to that study I was talking about, uh, over an eight-month period when people used condoms uh, almost perfectly and they added a cyclovir for the partner who had herpes, mm -hmm. that risk was 0.4%. So this is a tenfold reduction in risk compared to condoms by themselves. But again, that's not zero. It's 0.4%. So over an eight-month period, there's still a chance you'd be getting herpes, but it's not a big chance. It's a fairly low chance. Um, and I mentioned this also during the HIV portion, but it turns out that Truvada, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, that's also an anti antiviral drug. It turns out that Truvada does actually have some activity against herpes. And so uh, there's been a study of uh, HSV-2, I think that was conducted in Africa, and the rate of HSV-2 transmission while uh, couples mm -hmm. were on uh, Truvada. And it turns out that Truvada was able to reduce the risk of transmission of HSV-2 by as much as 36% in that clinical trial. And again, this was with heterosexual couples. Now, was that for um, asymptomatic cases or... That's just in general. Just across yeah, the board. Okay. Yeah, just 36% less transmission of HSV-2. Cool. So, I mean, again, no one, would, no one was going to prescribe you Truvada to, to reduce your risk of um, HSV, but it might you can think of it as being a bit of a perk, I suppose. Uh, of a, a kind of a positive side effect of taking the Truvada. So, um, <laughs> I can imagine somebody going to the doctor and like, you never told me that this would help prevent, mm, Ooh, that's a side effect. You didn't warn me about doctor. Ooh, we're going to have words. <laughs> yeah. And again, this is not something that the FDA is going to tell you about. It's not on the label, uh, for Truvada. Uh, it's not, a, you, your doctor won't prescribe it for you for this purpose. But again, a study has shown that to be true. And it's just one clinical trial. It could be a spurious, incorrect result. But it has been shown, and that was published. And it wasn't like published in some crappy, like no one ever heard of it journal. It's like in the Annals of Internal Medicine. So this is like a reputable study. Um, but anyway, mm -hmm. that that study was done. That's cool. So yes, now we're going to get into the more controversial part of our talk. Um, yeah, this is what actually kind of caused a little bit of a kerfuffle in our panel. Right. So there is a lot of controversy in like the BDSM community and the polyamory community, and also the LGBT community, and just the community at large about whether and how often you should test for HSV. Um, basically, nobody tests for HSV-1 because, again, 60% of people have it, and it's such a non-issue for most people. So unless, again, you have a partner who's got a huge like problem with immunocomprom being immunocompromised and mm -hmm. any virus is going to be a huge problem for them, um, no one really cares so much to test for HSV-1. It's very uncommon to test for HSV-1. Mm -hmm. If you beg and beg your doctor, you might be able to talk them into doing it, but it's kind of like, why are we doing this? Um, now, with HSV-2, interestingly enough, the Centers for Disease Control does not actually recommend the HSV-2 test for routine screening. That means that unless you're symptomatic, unless you, you have HSV-2 or you suspect that you have HSV-2 based on having an outbreak of the kind of mm -hmm. red bumps, um, the, the sores, the blisters around the genitals or whatever, uh, your mouth, your anus. We'll talk about symptoms a bit in a second. Uh, when you've got those going on, then it's reasonable to go get the HSV-2 test. But the CDC does not recommend you to do so unless you're symptomatic. Um, and that's because, you know, again, more than 95% of people who have HSV-2 have no idea they have it. It's asymptomatic. Right. It's not an issue. 
Uh, and testing for it just creates a stigma for that person if they tend to not be positive and it negatively influences their well-being in terms of emotional well-being, other things. Mm-hmm. So the CDC looks at all of that information and says, we don't think you should test for this unless you've got a reason to, which is a partner who is immunocompromised or uh, active evidence of you know recurrent outbreaks of HSC2. Um, however, the CDC does acknowledge that it might be useful to individuals who have multiple partners or individuals who's, uh, who suspects that they're infected, mm-hmm. or who have been who think they've definitely come into contact with HSV two via a partner who has either tested positive or has had a recent outbreak. Right. In those situations, the CDC does acknowledge that testing might be a good idea. And in that case, if you're having an outbreak and you've got the sores, you can have a swab test, and otherwise you can do a blood test for HSV two. Yeah, it's. I mean, like I'm somebody that is has a slight immunocompromised system. Um, mostly from when I went through chemotherapy and uh, chemotherapy, unfortunately does have the nasty, nasty side effect of really kind of messing with, (laughs) with everything there. And so for me, like it's, it's, it is important to me, but not super duper important to have, you know, my partners know their, you know, current state is spelled HSV. And that's a personal choice that I make because I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's highly likely that, you know, at some point in my life, I will contract HSV one or two. Um, obviously I want to try to avoid doing that, but if my partner, you know, says, Hey, you know, I went and it got tests done and I look through the panel and I don't see HSV. I'm not going to, you know, immediately go, Oh, you have to go back and you have to get this test. And Oh, you're a terrible person. And Oh, you lied to me because getting on the CDC doesn't recommend that these tests are done. There are other people, though, and that are incredibly vocal, though, and they demand that these tests are done. And so kind of going to what Vero, you know, says all the time, you want to make sure that, you know, when you give somebody, you know, when you're going over the results with, you know, somebody that you're ultimately going to, you know, have some kind of penetrative sex with or some kind of, you know, sex in general, you know, what do the results mean to you? What do... What do the tests mean to you? Did all of the panels, you know, are, are they to your satisfaction? If not, then you need to have that conversation and you need to understand where you stand on this matter. Because regrettably, you know, if this is something that is a main key point that has to happen, you need to make sure that your partners know well in advance of them getting scheduled or screened for these. Because if they don't know that they're not being tested for it, their doctors are, I mean, they rarely, if ever... We'll say anything about, well, you're not getting tested for HSV, just so you know. It's kind of an understated, you know, under understood, you know, sort of deal. Now, I will say there's a difference when you go to an LGBT health center, because again, the CDC does uh-huh. make that allowance for like certain subpopulations, uh, MSM, high, like what are termed high risk people who have sex with men whoop, whoop. is one of those categories where the CDC is like, well, maybe you could get tested for this occasionally. So mm-hmm. a lot of LGBT centers do uh, do routine HSV two testing, mm-hmm. uh, but again, if you're just going to your primary care doctor, they're probably not going to do it in a routine way. Fair enough. And yet again, if you're not sure where those you know physicians are that would be able to test for that, so I recommend reaching out to Planned Parenthood. They'll have resources to any kind of LGBT centers in your city. They'll have the resources, and you know if you're unsure, yeah, they, they might even be able to advocate on your behalf to you know, help you get the testing that you think that you deserve. Yeah. Now, in terms of detection, um, the window for this one, the the blood test, for example, that is detectable in as few as two to six weeks after you're exposed and contract HSV, but you have greater accuracy at like 12 to 16 weeks for the blood test, just in general. All right. And the swab test, just 
for my own sake, the swap test is only if you have a sore. Right. They have to have a sore that they can swap. They're not just going to, like, they swap every inch of skin on your body. Yeah. <laughs> swap <laughs> this. Swap all of this, you know, voguing into the office. Yeah. That, They're that, like, mm-mm. Yeah, nope. no, that Madonna creature's already got it. Like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's controversial. I've You know, unfortunately, I've seen, like, I've seen friends, like, stop being friends over this on AD Twitter. Someone tweets about their, their sexual health and, mm-hmm. like... Someone else like says, "Oh, but you didn't test for HSV, and it becomes this big deal." I, I, it's really sad to see like people like really get up in arms about this because really, I mean, everyone's got their own personal mm-hmm. level of comfort, and you should respect that ideally. But you know, make sure that your your safety is being met to your standard, mm-hmm. and let other people handle themselves. Yeah, what does it mean to you? You know, and that's the beautiful part. Like you know, you're able to make these decisions for yourself, and I mean, sometimes you might find partners that just. You know, it, it is a requirement. It is a cost of admission that every time you get a panel test done for STIs, you have to get it for HSV. And if you don't, unfortunately, we're not having sex until you do. Right. And, I mean, that's completely fair. It's the nature of the beast. It's the cost it's, of admission. It's within their right to ask. They have a right to their own level of well-being and safety yeah. and comfort. Yeah. Um, but but to stop being friends, that's kind of, oof. It's know, really it's intense. Sad. It is. But I've seen it happen. It's, it's really sad. People, yeah, get very, yeah. people get very emotional about this particular issue. So... Well, I mean, to be fair, like, it is kind of the more, like, sex-shaming one. Like, oh, did you hear Becky got herpes? Oh, the yeah. skank. And the stigma is really inappropriate based on how common it is. Because yeah. the sad thing is, again, 95% of people who have HSV2 have no idea they have it. A solid percentage of the people shaming people for having HSV actually have HSV. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's it's pretty ridiculous. Um, but, you know, if you do have it... Uh, Oftentimes, again, you won't even notice it. You might just think, oh, I got some razor burn today. It goes away. Never no, never notice it. You've got the sores. Uh, if you, otherwise, if you if you do notice mm-hmm. it, again, they're blisters. They're, you know, they can appear around the genitals, the rectum, the mouth. Um, they often break. They can leave uh, painful sores that can take a long time to heal if you have a more severe outbreak. Um, the first one is usually the worst. Um, you can also have, with that one, some flu-like symptoms again, fever, body ache, swollen glands, basically like just, you know, I'm feeling sick type symptoms. Yeah. Um, and then after the first outbreak, the second ones uh, are usually, are, and subsequent ones are usually not as noticeable. You might never notice it again. And they usually become less frequent over time as you, you know, your body kind of gets used to having HSV. Um, it never fully goes away. You're kind of, it's with you for life, but mm-hmm. you might never have another outbreak. And if you do have another outbreak, it might just be correlated with like being under a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, stress can bring out, uh, bring, bring on an HSV outbreak. Also being sick with, you know, let's say that you actually have the flu. You know, I've, I mean, there's a reason that like, especially for HSV one, they refer to them as, oh, it's a cold sore. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time you'll, you know, you'll have a small outbreak if you happen to have like a head cold or a sinus infection. Right. Whenever your body is under stress, basically. Yeah. yeah. Not just like pull your hair out stress. Right. But actually just like body stress. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and yet again, the, the, the treatment for this is just like a, it's Valtrex, right? Daily pill. Yep. So antiretrovirals, uh, acyclovir or Valtrex is the standard usually. Um, mm. and again, that reduces your risk of an outbreak by about 80% or more. And it also reduces your odds of transmission, um, by about tenfold as I talked about earlier. So one thing that I do want to mention, and this is something where my friend ran into this, you know, they got their, uh, they went for an SDI screening. They got the full panel, HSV one and two included. And when, you know, they went to the doctor to get the results, the doctor said, everything checks out. You're good to go. 
And my friend, you know, was like, oh, thank God, and then went home and read through the report, and positive for HSV 1 and 2. The doctor, even though, like, they showed positive for, you know, these infections through the blood test, was just like, well, it, it isn't, who cares? So you're good. You're fine. So if you are tested for HSV 1 and 2, you know, you want to make sure that you also check the results. Um, in this case, it was a negligent doctor or a doctor that I think assumed a little bit too much. Um, he, 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 he left the doctor after that, uh, never went back because he was so disgusted with it. But I mean, you want to make sure that you have that full disclosure for yourself and for your partners, because it would kind of, you know, suck to be like, Hey baby, everything's good to go. Hand them the documents. And then, um, about this section right here in particular. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, from the doctor's point of view, according to the Centers mm-hmm. for Disease Control, he didn't want to do anything wrong there. I mean, yeah. again, the CDC takes a very blasé stance on it as well. So, yeah. So, you know, just if this is something that, you know, you or your partner or partners are very, very staunch about and on the position that you have, you want to make sure that you get the full story. Um, this is one of those things where, say, you want to get a physical copy of the, you know, analysis of the report. Do you want to make sure that, you know, you go through it yourself just to make sure that you understand everything? And if you have questions, I mean, you can go through it together with your doctor. That's kind of what you pay them to do. Yes, indeed. So, uh, <laughs> I guess yeah. moving on to uh, the next uh, STI in this death march of uh, infections we're going through tonight. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, bear with us, folks. Remember, you can always pause and come back. You don't have to do this in one sitting. And also remember, please refer to the show notes if you would like to skip ahead. <laughs> if you uh, if you do do all this in one sitting, um, like, we More want to go Yeah. To be fair, we're not even doing this in one sitting. We're taking breaks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So next up is human papillomavirus, or HPV. It's for the longest time I thought it was the human papillion virus, and it was when you turn in like I mean it's basically like human butterfly virus, <laughs> but no, it's um, HPV is I've also found is actually fairly common as well. Yeah, so HPV is another one of those uh, viruses that most people will get over the course of their lives, um, similar to HSV. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, in some cases, it's more common with certain strains, huh. and many of them are completely innocuous. They just kind of. And you can actually clear them. That's unlike HSV. Oftentimes with a human papillomavirus, you get an infection and then it just clears up and yeah. it's gone. Um, so you can get it pretty much all the standard ways you, you, you can get um, mm-hmm. infections. You can get it by vaginal intercourse, by anal intercourse, by oral sex. Again, it's skin-to-skin contact. So um, mm-hmm. condoms not 100% effective, but can reduce the risk. Um so testing's a bit weird with HPV because in men there isn't a test for HPV. Um, you just there isn't one. So, whoops. <laughs> uh, Sorry, men. Yeah, um, you only really would know that you had it if you developed uh, one of the ways that HPV manifests itself, which is a genital wart, mm-hmm. um, and that's exactly what it sounds like. Um, so, the test for the symptoms exist uh, in women. You can also get a Pap smear, which is another way of determining HPV presence, uh, and then also, I mean. HPV also commonly causes cancer, so you can you can you might know that you have it if you develop cervical cancer, or anal cancer, oropharyngeal cancer, or vaginal or penile cancer. And oropharyngeal cancer is cancer that affects. I I, I did well with that word. Yes, you did. Uh, so oro oral uh, oral mm-hmm. as in like your mouth, and pharyngeal is like the back of your throat and the upper region, like mm-hmm. back in the you know 
down the back of your throat. So really, basically yeah. mouth and throat cancer. It's your pharynx, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yep, for sure. Um, so risk reduction, um, for, this is one of those uh, STIs, at least, is semi-preventable. Uh, there are actually a ton of different strains of HPV, but uh, there's a vaccine against, like, the nine worst offenders, I suppose you could say, um, and that's the Gardasil vaccine. It's mm-hmm. a, the name brand. Uh, and that vaccination is approved for uh, as, in boys and girls as young as 11, because ideally you'd like to vaccinate against Gardasil uh, for the... Against. No, no, no. <laughs> you'd like to use that Gardasil to vaccinate against HPV before uh, you become sexually active. So that right. at a young age, when you're still a virgin, is ideal. Um, because mm-hmm. once you start having sex, you're going to start getting exposed to these strains. You just are, because they're super, super common. Um, however, the vaccine is approved in both men and women up to the age of 30. Uh, well, ugh, wow, where did that come from? Up to the age, up of, to the age of 26. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I guess we're going to loopy as the night wears on here. Yeah. Um, but you can still get it into your 30s, which is what I was going to say. I think my brain skipped ahead. Uh, but it, at that point, it's kind of off-label, and so your insurance might not cover it. And you'll be stuck paying for it out of pocket. If you beg your doctor to prescribe it, you can still get it. It's not just going to hurt you past the age of 26. It's just yeah. at that point, um, it's kind of assumed by the FDA that you'll be have been exposed to yeah. uh, enough strains that the, the vaccine's not as effective. So they don't, they don't recommend it. But you can still get it. It's not going to hurt you. For the record, the FDA is the Food and Drug Administration of the United States. Yeah, they, they approve uh, basically drug indications in the United States. So I, we've been referencing the CDC and the FDA pretty often. The mm-hmm. CDC generally is, controls, talks about like public health and like how to prevent mm-hmm. uh, acquisition of disease. And the FDA is responsible for regulating like drugs and treatments and such. Yeah. So just to, in case you're not a U.S. citizen, I should clarify that a little bit. Yep. So Gardasil is actually, I mean, it's it's... I know that especially in the United Kingdom, there's like this really big push against uh, vaccinating against HPV. Um, but I think that it's fairly standard now where both uh, boys and girls and the United Kingdom are almost required, I think, to to have vaccination against HPV. And uh, yeah, just we haven't mentioned it about talking about vaccines yet, but um, how do vaccines cause autism, Metrico? They don't. Yeah, if you want to go to, if you want more information on that, you can literally go to howtovaccinescauseautism.com. Um, you're going to see the phrase, they fucking don't in 72 point font. <laughs> but if you scroll down to the bottom of the page, you'll actually get a link to a lot of really good resources on yeah. how vaccines don't cause autism by like every single study that's ever been done, really, that investigates yeah. that. They don't. Yeah. And, um, and it's like, oh, hey, well, we found this one by this guy that, you know, I mean, this this thing was discredited, and the guy is no longer certified. And oh yeah, uh, he was struck from the medical record. We're talking yeah. about Andrew Wakefield. So the, yeah. the one study that was ever done that suggested that uh, vaccines cause autism uh, mm-hmm. was both discredited. Uh, he was found to have been corrupt and been taking money from uh, <laughs> from companies that had a vested interest in in this being uh, the story being put out there. And as a result, he was struck from the uh, registry in United Kingdom, which basically means he lost his medical license. So, so, yeah. I mean, if you want to believe what he says, that's completely fine. But you also have to understand that you're believing something that is incredibly false. I'm not going to be as generous as Metro. That ain't completely fine. That's some bullshit. Well, I mean, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, it, it is complete bullshit. But I, I'm not, I can't tell you what to believe, but... There is a certain point where it's like, you are believing a lie, and everything supports that you're believing a lie. 
your life is a lie. I'm, at that point, like, that's one of those things where, okay, you think that, that's great. Yeah, we can't be friends. <laughs> yeah, no, like, I am very serious about that, where if you believe that vaccines cause autism and so you refuse to get vaccines or, you know, inoculate your children, do not bring your disease-ridden children around me. Like, no, because... No, like, you're a terrible person. I'm sorry. But, like, you can think that. That's fine. But you're hurting people, and I hope that you're fine with that, Satan. Yeah, right. <laughs> Basically. Um, but, yeah, so, again, you know... For the record, if you have allergies to vaccines, oh, yeah. that does not apply to you. Oh, like, yeah, like, that's very true. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm so sorry. Okay, like, and, and lots of people, vaccines are contraindicated because of a variety of different things. It yeah. can be allergies to components of the vaccine. It can be chemical sensitivities to components of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. In those situations, absolutely, obviously, you shouldn't be getting the vaccine. You're not Satan. <laughs> no, no, no. But, again, we want everyone else to be getting the vaccine so that you're protected. Because exactly. That's called herd immunity. We want everyone else to be protected so that you're less likely to get exposed to these things. Mm -hmm. Um and also, again, use condoms if you... It'll mm -hmm. help. Again, it's not foolproof here because it's skin-to-skin -skin contact. Condoms don't cover mm -hmm. all of you unless you, like, are into micro and you're fitting in a condom, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> for for, for uh, women, you can get, you know, checked for cervical cancer as well as a good indicator um, and, and as a good way to kind of prevent, you know, further spread. Yeah. Now, in terms of symptoms of human papillomavirus, besides, like, cancer, which, I mean, it can potentially cause... Um, again, yeah. most infections, I said almost everyone gets it, but the thing is almost everyone also clears it. So they get HPV and it goes away and they get HPV and it goes away and it doesn't actually cause any problems whatsoever. In certain people, it can lead to genital warts and in certain people, it will lead to cancer. But again, these are fairly low risk sorts of things. The CDC is actually really funny here. They say, what's a symptom of having HPV? Having HPV? Like, they're, they're very wishy-washy because, like, HPV is just kind of a weird STI in their yeah, eyes. Yeah, because, it's, because it's, it, it gets cleared and because it's so, such, it's like a non-issue unless it's not a non-issue, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you'll, basically, it's kind of like you know it if you got it, but otherwise, don't worry about it super much. Um, and, yeah, there's no, there's no way to treat or cure HPV. I mean, aside from like, you know, you can treat your cancer if you get cancer, or you can treat your genital wart by having it removed if you get a genital yeah. wart, but that's, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it on HPV. We get to talk about crabs now. Indeed. I'll let, I'll let Metrico handle this one. He's been, he's been kind of letting, staying quiet while I've been talking a lot. Oh no, that's completely fine. So I actually got crabs way back in college and that sucked. You filthy um, whore. Yeah, I know, right? Oh my god. Oh, sex shaming is my fetish. Oh, but I didn't get through sex, and I'll explain that in a little bit. So, crabs, you can get them through mostly sexual contact with other people. Um, but it's, it's, it's actually possible through contact with somebody's bed linens or clothing or towels. And crabs, it's just pubic lice. You know, it's, it's think about like when you were a kid and, you know, a kid got lice in your class and then the next day everybody has lice. It's not like, you know, you were nine years old and fucking everybody in the class. And, and if you were, then I mean, maybe you went to the wrong school, <laughs> but you know, crabs, you know, it's just pubic lice. And I got it because my roommate, um, got it from a sexual partner that she had. And, um, we, uh, ended up, um, you know, we shared a bathroom. Her towel was right next to mine. We did laundry together. And I mean, hey, I got pubic lice and that sucked. But the thing is, is that like, it's easy to find. It's easy to fix. The treatment is super simple. 
the way that you test for it is actually pretty much the same that you would if you have a kid and you're looking for lice. You just look. If you see lice in your pubes, and, I mean, you got you got pubic lice. That's pretty much it. There's There's no other way to test. There's no blood test. There's no you know, swab. It's just a visual test. Maybe you get a magnifying glass if you're, you know, feeling some itching or things of that nature, because that's, you know, what pubic lice can cause. You want to kind of just go through your pubes, make sure everything looks okay. You also might want to try to check like your general groin area, you know, maybe, you know, look where, you know, your legs kind of match up, you know, the nice little soft folds of the skin, because that's really where pubic lice can live and they can also lay their eggs um, the thing is, is that there's no real way to prevent you getting crabs because it's not, you know, you can wear a condom, but it's not going to prevent it. So kind of, you know, like what Vero said earlier, you want to check it before you wreck it. In this case, you don't fuck somebody with crabs. Indeed. Yeah. Now, the other thing is like some people, you know, you can shave your pubes. Um, a lot of people do that and that actually does lower your risk because they need pubes to grow in. Um, Interestingly enough, though, it's kind of a double-edged sword when you mm-hmm. do that, especially if you're using a double-edged razor, I suppose. But, um, <laughs> but the thing is, you're braiding the skin when you shave, so shaving actually increases your risk of getting other uh, skin-to-skin infections, like um, herpes and uh, HPV, potentially. And mm-hmm. because, again, if you're cutting yourself, you're potentially opening up a bl- blood yeah. as well. You can also increase your risk of HIV transmission by shaving or yeah. doing a poor job shaving. So... Kind of a mixed bag there. So people that like to keep that nice little twinky, you know, appearance, just, you know, make sure that you're not, you know, gouging your skin out with your razor, please. Um, I, I'm, so going back to when I had crabs, like it was kind of humiliating for me in a sense. I mean, I was kind of embarrassed about it, but like treatment is really easy. I mean, you go to a pharmacy, you get basically a lotion, that uh, and you're looking for specific lotions. You're looking for ones that um, contain one percent of uh, permethrin, and there's also like a mousse that comes in like a little like spray can essentially. And you're looking for something that contains uh, pyrethins, or uh, I can't actually even say this word, but it's a per- pyrethrin butoxide. Yeah, see, that's why I have Vero here. He has a degree from Columbia <laughs> to say words for me. Sing to me, my angel of music. <laughs> But the thing is, is that, you know, you want to use um, either one of these things. It's available over the counter. You don't have to go to a doctor. You can check yourself before you embarrass yourself with your doctor, basically. And you just go to Walgreens, you get yourself a lotion or a mousse, and you're pretty much good. It's the treatments, you know, takes about, a, you know, you want to treat for about a week to two weeks to make sure that everything's good. One thing that they recommend that you don't do, you don't like, oh my god, I have crabs, and then you shave everything off. Like, you can do that, but that actually doesn't really solve the problem. You also want to kind of, if you've, you know, you want to wash your clothing, you want to make sure everything is clean, um, you want to make sure that, you know, there's nothing that these, you know, lice can live in long enough for them to latch on to somebody else. Pubic lice tend to be able to live for about up to two to three days without a human host. So if you're unable to like do laundry in that period of time, you just take everything and you put it into like a plastic bag and you seal it for about a week. And that typically will kill the pubic lice. Now, if you're like living in a pack house or you've got roommates or uh-huh. anything like that, you probably also want to just alert everyone around you that, hey, mm-hmm. this is going on. So it's not like 
a big surprise if someone else comes down with it or, yeah. you know, and if you generally sleep in the same bed with someone, you might consider you know, having them take the couch for a while, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. But that being said, you know, if you happen to have pubic lice and your partner contracts pubic lice, I mean, it's not the end of the world. You can, you know, treat yourself, you know, treat yourself that <laughs> not, not, not like in a positive way, but like you can treat each other. You can make sure that everything is good. Um, one thing about pubic lice is that they can sometimes actually move all the way up to, like, live in your eyelashes. And there's a, a special type of Vaseline that you can use and for that, but that is a prescription. You cannot get that over the counter. Do not use the Vaseline that you would for, some people use it as lubricant or for, you know, chapped lips, things like that. Don't use that because it will irritate your eyes. So if you've noticed that there, you know, happen to be lice in your eyelashes... Yeah, you, you need to go talk to a doctor to get that special Vaseline. But uh, crabs are pretty pretty basic. I mean, you know, it's it's they're not super scary. Um, a lot of people don't like talking about it, though, because it goes back to the whole sex shaming thing, you know. Oh, my God, you have pubic lice. You're a dirty person. I mean, think about when you were in school, you know, elementary school, and a kid got lice. Oh, God, they're gross. They're disgusting. You know, they're not clean, that sort of thing. You know, having pubic lice, it is what it is. You know, you just want to make sure that you catch it. You do, you know, generally what I do is, especially if I'm sexually active, you know, it's, if you're a guy, you do, you know, if you're me, I do testicular checks to make sure everything's fine. You know, if you're in the shower, you know, you're cleaning the area down there, you just kind of, you know, take a peek and see, you know, what you can see. And if there's itching, if there's scratch, you know, if you're irritated down there, you know, take a closer look or maybe have a partner do it for you if, you know, you can't get a good angle. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty much lice. Uh, that's, that's, that's crabs. That's pubic lice. I mean, they're kind of innocuous almost, but we're going to talk about hepatitis now. And hepatitis is actually kind of a serious mamajama. At least some uh, types of hepatitis are. So one thing I want to clarify about hepatitis is it's actually, um, I mean, the ones we're talking about uh, here are that are kind of sexually transmitted are generally like hepatitis A, B, and C. Um, it's mainly, uh, as you'll find out, B is actually the one that's kind of the big baddie, mm-hmm. that's hepatitis B, I suppose. But they're not actually really closely related to each other. They just all have in common is that they can irritate the liver. Yeah. They're not like the same virus. It's not like HSV where they're very closely related to each other. They're actually not. Yeah. So just keep that in mind. Uh, hepatitis A is kind of weird in that it's an acute, it's an acute infection. You're not chronically infected with hepatitis A, um, the way you get it is generally um, by fecal-oral route, and by that we mean, like, going ass-to-mouth, a.k.a. rimming. Um, or let's say that you're fucking somebody bareback, and then once you're done, you take out your dick, and then you have them suck it. I mean, that that's another way. that That's another ass-to-mouth. Or if you're trumping. You know. Yeah, if you're trumping, you know. Whew. It's a good callback. <laughs> whew. Yeah. Or, like, honestly, like, even, like, just, like, if you're contaminated water or food like it, at that point mm-hmm. it's not really sexually transmitted but just intimate contact can you know can get you there there's also i mean like if like and this happens a lot of the time with like a uh, daycare where or if you have a kid you know sometimes you're changing their diaper and then maybe you don't wash your hands immediately or you you know scratch your face or rub your eyes it's another way that hepatitis can be transmitted sure uh now if you're going to get tested for hepatitis a uh, there is a blood test available for that. It's the uh, hepatitis A uh, antibody test. It looks for immunoglobulin type M 
uh, against hepatitis A in your blood. Because it's an antibody test, again, it's an indirect test. It's not looking for the hepatitis A itself. Uh, it can be necess- uh, it can come back positive as soon as uh, two weeks after exposure, but you really aren't going to be sure until about six six ish months or uh, afterwards uh, potentially. Mm-hmm. And the thing with hepatitis A is that these these um, these uh, the antibodies typically do go away about a year afterward. Like I mean, yet again, it's an acute infection, so it tends to not last all that terribly long. Like typically eight to nine months. After about one year, it's the antibodies tend to go away, which yeah. is kind of, I mean, it's kind of bizarre, but yeah. what's also kind of bizarre is once you've had it, you're probably never going to have it again. Yeah. I think I misspoke earlier too. I meant to say six weeks after. So mm-hmm. they came present as early as two weeks. They're definitely going to be present by about the six, you know, like the 12 week range. And then by the time you get to six to 12 months, it's actually starting to, to taper off. That's great. Yes. Response. Yeah. Yes. Of just me having a bit of a slip of the tongue there. That's completely um, fine. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, uh, risk reduction is Hep A. Um, wash your hands uh, after sex, after using the bathroom. You know, whatever. Uh, use a dental dam if you're concerned about it in terms of your, um, you know, ass to mouth mm-hmm. activities. Um, and if you're gonna, just for the record, if you're going to rim somebody, even if you use a dental dam, make sure that they practice just good hygiene. I mean, cockerphilia is okay if that's your thing, and I'm not here to tell you that it's a terrible thing, but there are inherent risks that do come along with it. So you want to make sure that, you know, especially you, you, you want them to make make sure that they shower, you know, every now and then, make sure that they, you know, practice good toilet hygiene as well. Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I mean, keep in mind that you know, they can be really clean down there and you can still contract a, hep mm-hmm. a because it's a virus. It's not like you can rinse out every tiny little virus particle that yeah. potentially had touched their anus. But yeah. I mean, it, it's going to lower your risk. The less, mm-hmm. the less fecal material that's there, the less, the less stuff is getting into your, your yeah. mouth. That's, Precisely. That's good. Yeah. Uh, and that's true for other, uh, fecal oral transmitted diseases too. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, polio virus. Yeah, oh, I yeah. doubt you're going to be getting polio virus as an STI. It's theoretically possible. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, just, you know, watch out for yourself there. But now the symptoms for hepatitis A also mirror hepatitis B and C. So yet again, they're basically going, it's an, it's an, it's an infection of the liver. In this case, it's super acute. Um, which by that would mean it, it doesn't last forever. It's kind of a, it's a transient sort of thing. Usually it, it's like a big spike, like, but bow it's here and then it's gone. Um, and, a lot of the symptoms, you know, might be fatigue, fever, vomiting, jaundice, which means that your skin and your eyes turn kind of yellow. Some people that have like cirrhosis of the liver also have jaundice, um, low appetite, and especially like your urine can turn very, very dark and it's kind of troubling to see. Right. Yeah. But um, that's because it's the liver. Right. Now, fortunately, prevention for Hep A is besides just hygiene and stuff we talked about before, mm-hmm. um, is pretty easy because there's a vaccine for Hep A, which is pretty cool. And uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So there's a two-part vaccine. I've been vaccinated for hepatitis A and B, and I have as well. So the way that you can do this, there are two routes um, for hepatitis A. There's a two-part vaccine that you get um, one, and then the next one about six months later. You can also do a combination, which is what I had. And I think Vero had the separate ones. I separate, yeah. So I had the combination uh, one, which is for hepatitis A and B. And it's uh, three separate vaccines that occur over the period of six months, typically about two months spread apart. 
And they're kind of like booster shots almost in the fact that they suck and they hurt. But they go in your arm and it's kind of sore for a day. But that's it. And the cool thing about it is that it's much the same way as the flu vaccine. It's not a live uh, vaccination. So you're not basically infecting yourself with hepatitis A. It's dormant and it just allows for your body to like, okay, cool, let's produce the antibodies. Okay, cool, we're done. And that's basically it. And because it's not a live uh, vaccination, it's complete. It, I mean, the CDC says that it is safe for individuals that have immunocompromised systems like myself. Right. Now, just to correct Metrico slightly here, um, it's not. It's actually even safer than, in generally speaking, the, the influenza vaccine because mm-hmm. uh, with influenza, you sometimes have to deal with it being an inactivated yes. vaccine. With this, it's actually, they're just taking components, mm-hmm. of their antigenic components of the, of the virus, and they're they're using those to, to generate an antibody response. Mm-hmm. So it's even there's actually no virus like that's actually a yeah. hepatitis virus present in the vaccine. Yeah, I was like, hold up, I'm pretty sure I misspoke there, but um... <laughs> <laughs> that's why we keep yeah. the virologist around. Yeah. Now another thing, this is all before. Um, this is you know, okay, cool. You know, I'm going to get vaccinated against um, hepatitis A. Much like uh, HIV, there is also a post-exposure prophylaxis. Oh my god, prophylaxis that exists, and it's something where okay, it will you'll take in the immune uh, globulin, um, or also the vaccine as well. But this can only happen two weeks after you've been potentially exposed. Right. It's yeah. a, it's a little bit better grace period than seventy two hours for HIV, but still, it's you. It can be kind of difficult to detect because. Hepatitis A, I mean, most people just get kind of, you know, a little bit of tired, a little bit, you know, their pee looks a little weird. You know, they're not going to always be 100% sure whether or not they have it. Right. And again, because it can be cleared, it's not it's mm-hmm. not the end of the world, but it's still good to, you know, be aware of uh, yeah. and stuff like that. Um, now with Hep B, um, this one can potentially be a chronic infection. Um so, you know, it can also be acute, more like hep A, but it, it, symptoms are similar. Uh, transmission is, is similar uh, it, it, to a lot of the other STIs we talked about. So we're not talking necessarily uh, fecal-oral at this point, but mm-hmm. more transmission via blood, via semen, other bodily fluids. So again, unprotected sex can be a transmission route for hepatitis B, needle sharing. Um, and also, I mean, we haven't talked about a lot of the other ones, but a mother to baby at birth can happen too, but it's not really sexual. So we don't really, we don't really talk about that as much. Yeah. Um, there's a test, hepatitis B blood test. A lot of different variants are available, but, um, you know, again, just if yeah. you suspect happy, if you don't have hep A and you've got the similar symptoms to hep A, mm-hmm. probably have hep B, go get tested for hep B. Um, risk reduction with hep B. I mean, don't share needles. Don't, um, you know, you, yeah. you use condoms, use dental dams. Again, it's it's fluid based, so here the condoms and dental dams are more effective. Mm-hmm. And again, as Medico alluded to with the Hep A, uh, there's a vaccine available for Hep B, and this mm-hmm. one has a series of boosters. They're not very fun shots, but um, they they're very good vaccines, and you can you can at least protect yourself against the, the Hep B. Yeah, for Hep B, it's three or four shots over six months, or if you get the combination with Hep A, it's uh, three shots over the course of six months. And if you are a man who has sex with men and you have multiple partners, it, the Hep B vaccine is pretty well recommended for yeah. that. It's it's I highly recommend getting vaccinated against hepatitis, especially if you do a lot of travel overseas, or especially if you suck a lot of dick, or fuck a lot of ass, or yeah. whatever or, you your know. preference might be. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. So. 
Um, there's not a whole lot you can do once you have it besides just palliative care, mm-hmm. which is like treat the symptoms, but um, stay well hydrated, get rest, um, take it easy a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, again, it's, it's not the most common STI, but it's, yeah. especially as an STI, like mm-hmm. sexual transmission is not the main way people get hep B, but, you know, again, if you get the vaccine, if you possibly can, use condoms if you possibly can, you know. Now, it is important to say that with all hepatitis, there is a slim chance. Um, I think it's up to like 5% of individuals that are diagnosed with uh, hepatitis will have some kind of a liver damage that will be long lasting, even if it's acute. So if you feel like you have these symptoms, it's always good to get tested for it because that way your doctors, if you're diagnosed, can begin to monitor your liver to ensure that, you know, everything's fine. And in some cases, they might actually have to hospitalize you if the damage to your liver is proving to be severe. So you want to make sure that, oh, well, it's just acute. Oh, it's going to go away on its own. Well, you should still get tested and you should still get your doctor involved in your care. Right. So you make sure you're looking after your liver, not drinking heavily, for example, if you yeah. have some liver damage, you know, things like that. So, yeah. um, right. So, yeah, that's, I think that's pretty much pretty much it for hep B. Yeah, for hep B, yeah. Hep C. Um, there's no vaccination for hepatitis C. There is not. Um, and so it's it's kind of, um, you know, mostly bloodborne. Uh, sexual transmission for hep C is actually pretty darn rare. It's mm-hmm. uh, really just like rough anal sex. If you're, you know, making making blood, you know, happen uh, can be a way of doing it. Yeah. But you got to, I mean, again, it's not the most common, it's not the most common infection route. Mm-hmm. Uh, needle sharing and things like sharing razor blades, sharing other sharp utensils can um, can come up. A blood play could come up, you know, if, if you're yeah. doing really rough BDSM play. Um, and again, it's easier to contract if you have uh, other mm-hmm. immunocompromise going on, like through, you know, as Metro said, cancer treatment or HIV or something like mm-hmm. that, or also a co-infection, um, like, you know, with other things going on in your, in your system, you can potentially be more, more at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the testing available again is a blood test, um, looking again for the presence of antibodies to the virus for the most part. Um, risk reduction, again, there's no hep C vaccine here, but, you know, perhaps, you know, safer sex practices, again, condoms are your friend uh, in general. Symptoms are similar to other hepatitis. hepatitis. Um, now for hep C, there are drugs that you can take that can help with long-term symptoms of hep C because this is a chronic hepatitis for the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah, about 80% of people that contract hepatitis C will have a chronic version of it until the end of their life. Right, exactly. But again, this is a very, I wouldn't say minor STI, but it's just very uncommon as an STI. So don't worry about it too, too much. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's, that's it. I mean, hepatitis, you know, it's uncommon as a STI, like Vero just said, but it's, you know, it's good to be aware of it. And especially if you're a man that has sex with men. Make sure that you get, you know, the vaccination. Doctors everywhere have it. And the best part is, let's say that, you know, it is, you know, two, three shots within a six-month period. If you happen to miss a shot, that's fine. You can resume treatment, the shots at any time. No yeah, worries. there's just no good reason not to be vaccinated against the ones <laughs> that have the vaccines, in my opinion. So that's why I have the vaccines uh, myself. But um, so the last, uh, I think, STI we wanted to talk about is not actually really an STI, but it kind of gets shut into the category uh, because it's, uh, it's transmitted by in- prolonged intimate contact, um, which, you know, sex would construe as, could be construed as prolonged intimate contact, depending yeah. on whether you're having a quickie or not, I suppose. But, 
Um, yeah, so it's uh, bacterial meningitis causes inflammation of the meninges and the, the brain, basically. So that's uh, not a really fun place to get an infection. And it can cause like really severe things like, uh, like death um, in 10% of people. Mm-hmm. So you don't want this. Um, you can't really test for it unless you have like symptoms, like spinal tap is like a test you get for uh, meningitis. So it's not really a fun or common procedure, but uh, fortunately, uh, and the reason that it comes up in particular is because there was an outbreak of bacterial meningitis among men who have sex with men in some of the major uh, urban areas in the United States a couple of years ago, in, oh, yeah. in New York and San Francisco. Oh, yeah. And I think Minneapolis as well had an outbreak. Yeah, San Francisco, I think a little bit in Seattle, Minneapolis. There's like a little bit of it in uh, Dallas. Yeah, a lot of the kind of the gay meccas, I guess you would say, yeah. had some had some uh, bacterial meningitis going on. And so there's a big push in the, in the, in the gay and the LGBT mm-hmm. community to, uh, to vaccinate for bacterial meningitis. And uh, we'll link to some information on that vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you if you do happen to, to have symptoms of bacterial meningitis, you should be aware of what they are because it's extremely urgent that you get this treated as soon as possible to avoid the really severe symptoms, which can include death, as I mentioned. It's not a symptom you want. So, yeah. So, um, but look out for a stiff neck, a really high fever, uh, light sensitivity, confusion, severe headache, uh, vomiting. And some people also experience uh, a rash. Uh, and uh, you can generally detect these as early as uh, th- three to seven days of infection or earlier. But again, if you suspect these, you want to go uh, go get that checked out because your doctor is likely to start you with antibiotics just in case, uh, especially if you're in that kind of community because, again, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a pretty serious deal. So Yeah, and the faster that you act, the better. I mean, Bacterial meningitis, you don't play with. It is one of the things that you just don't fuck with. Yeah. And get the vaccine, especially yeah. if you're having sex with multiple people. And if you're a man who has sex with men, get the vaccine. Just go get the yeah. vaccine. And I mean, it's, it's, I know that I, I was vaccinated for it as a child. So, but even so, you still need to monitor. <laughs> yeah. And if you're not sure, get the vaccine again. There's, yeah. nothing, there's nothing wrong with getting a vaccine twice. It's yeah, not going to hurt you. Yeah, it's not going to kill you. Right. Exactly. Bacterial meningitis will. Will actually kill you. Yes, yeah. <laughs> for sure. So with that, we're just going to, I mean, man, that was a oh, quite the marathon. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, there is still a lot more that could be said about this. Yeah. And I'm sorry if you feel like we glanced over anything or we uh, we may have misspoke here and there just because we were trying to ru- kind of rush through things at, at, at certain points. Feel free to call us on that or uh, to question us. And we'll be happy to address those at a later date. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's it's something that, you know, we will probably get to. It's um, I'll probably write uh, an advice column myself about this is how to report your if you contracted HSDI. How do you talk to your partners, things of that nature? If I don't write it, I'm sure Vera will take it up. But it is important to kind of, you know, have that understanding. You know, how do you responsibly report? Yeah. I mean, the basics is just, you know, make sure that if, when you're getting tested, you um, you tell all of your partners that you've been tested. Make sure you've got you can, you know who you've had sex with, so you can get in t- contact with them. Try to get actual names from people, not just furry names. So you can, can't say, "Oh, it was Sparkle Fox." Who the fuck is Sparkle Fox? <laughs> yeah, um, you know that's not a good situation to be in. So make sure you can trace back who you've had sex with, and also this basic rule: if you, if you and your partners have agreed on safer sex practices, and you've all followed all the practices you agreed to, and somebody gets an STI. That's just bad luck. It's not them being a bad person or being a slut or being unclean or any of those ne- negative sort of like stigma terms people like to throw around. 
you agreed to this. This is the risk you accepted. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you drew the short straw. You just got to deal with the consequences. Don't have luck. Yeah, exactly. So don't shame people for that. Yeah. But we can get into more detail on that in a column at some point. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's, it's, there are definitely ways that you want to, you know, make sure that you have a positive way of reporting these and that you don't damage your relationship because somebody just was unlucky enough to contract something. And you know, don't be shy about telling your partners about it either because yeah. they do need to know. They need, they need to be able to get treatment if they, if they potentially get been exposed to something. Yeah. So we'll move on to our question because holy cow, this has been a marathon. It certainly has. And we've received this question from multiple people and boiled down. It's, you know, I've been single for some time now. You know, I'm usually able to bounce back and find a new mate, but currently my every attempt to meet someone has been met with failure. Do you have any advice? Are there any dating sites out there that I might not know about? Yeah, so, I mean, there are some free dating sites um, that I've used and that I'm familiar with. Um, Pounced, I think, is a pretty common one, and you can put a profile up there, and that, that can be effective. I've met some interesting people through Pounced. It's not, I'd say... Like with most dating sites, your response rate is not going to be fantastic. For, <laughs> for all the people you talk to, maybe 1% of them will be people you actually are interested in forming a friendship or relationship with. Yeah. But I mean, you know, if you just leave it up there, it's kind of passively doing some advertising for you. You've got your profile, you know, it's just, it's passive advertising. You know, I'm looking for a relationship. I leave mm-hmm. one up just to see if anyone new in my area is looking to meet, meet up or whatever. It's not, it's not a big time commitment to keep up on. So you can make a pounce profile, but, mm-hmm. um, my personal experience and pretty much every relationship I've ended up in, in the fandom, uh, is really bit developed through, um, organic interaction and on other social networks that aren't strictly speaking for the purpose of, uh, of dating. Yeah. So just getting close to people on Twitter, talk, striking up conversations on Twitter, uh, striking up conversations on Facebook. If you're in free Facebook, I'm not personally, but a lot of people are, um, yeah, for Affinity, SoFurry, Flist. I mean, all these sites yeah. are places where you come in contact with furries and you can yeah. discuss mutual interests. And again, sometimes that might blossom into something more than just a friendship. Yeah. There are lots of like Telegram chats, group chats that you can join. There's an entire master list, a very furry Telegram chat that, you know, exists. IRCs, that was me. Like IRCs and mucks is how I met a lot of people that I've dated. So, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, for furry, what's really unique is that we are uniquely enriched and having social media is basically part of our existence as a fandom. So if you're unable to get to a convention to meet people in person or person, um, you know, it's, it's, what's good is that Twitter exists, Skype exists, Telegram exists. There are ways that you can meet people, you can add people and you can get to know them. And I mean, the thing is, is that if you, especially in furry, like if you're aggressive in your search, it might put a lot of people off, you know, holy cow, you just want me for sex. I mean, it's true even in, you know, we'll say the mundane dating space, you know, you want to make sure that, you know, if you're looking for somebody to date, you don't kind of put it on Twitter, which is not really meant as a dating service, you know? Right. I mean, it's one thing to make it, you know, after you've gotten to know somebody that you can mention yeah. you're single and see if they're single and, you know, that kind of thing. But you don't necessarily want to put in your, your profile that I'm single and looking and, you know, like yeah. being super... Because unfortunately, it comes across as desperation mm-hmm. in most cases. Yeah. And desperation is just unfortunately never sexy. I, actually, I shouldn't say never. Someone's probably into it. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not attracted to desperation. I don't think most people are, so... 
Because, I mean, it, it lends itself to, like, an instability. So you want to make sure that you're not coming across as, like, I just want to date anybody. I'm looking for a relationship of convenience. Hey, will you date me? Hey, hey, well, hey. It also comes down to showing poor judgment. When someone shows mm-hmm. really poor judgment or really seems to lack social awareness, that's a turnoff because it means I'm probably going to have issues with them in the relationship that I might potentially be in with them. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't, don't give tip-offs or tells that you might not be the best person to date because you're super desperate. Even if you are desperate, you can't really let on that you're desperate. It's kind of like, you know, you're more likely to hire someone who doesn't look like they need a job than mm-hmm. someone who comes in looking like a bum, right? Like, it's what it comes down to, so. Yeah. So, I mean, I wouldn't say that there's any, like, specific sites, you know, that, that I mean, there's Pounced and all that. But... And there are other free dating sites out there, but most of those are, like, basically just traps uh don't use them <laughs> yeah we won't go into any names but i mean i've heard a lot of really bad reports for a lot of them. lots of bots and people taking your money and not actually delivering much of anything yeah. and to be fair that's true for a lot of you know mundane dating services as well especially i've heard like ashley madison was just lousy with female bots yeah. but pounce is legit like that oh yeah yeah but that, that one we can actually recommend yeah, but i would yeah but we wouldn't recommend anything else, um, except for Twitter and Facebook, like what we said. Yeah. Um, now, the other thing is, once you've gotten to know people there, that's when you can start leveraging, hey, what cons are you going to? Because you it's kind of hard to go to a con if, you're, if you're, you haven't been to one before, if you don't know anybody. But, you know, having a few Twitter friends you're going to meet up with at the con can make it a bit more friendly. And then you can kind of leverage that and see who they know and meet up with their friends <laughs> and go to some room parties. And it's pretty quick that you actually start meeting people and connecting pretty well. So, yeah. give that a shot. So, I mean... If anything, go to a convention. If you're unable to go to a convention, use social media, but use it responsibly. Um, it just kind of reeks of desperation yet again. If you're like, hey, will you be my friend? You know, nuzzles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, if, if you're curious about, you know, how to do that, maybe review our, you know, 80 Twitter etiquette account. A lot of the rules there will apply to this as well. For sure. I think that brings us to our closer. So, um... Our episode next week will be one that's near and dear to Metrica's heart. Trust. We're talking about trust. We've gone over integrity. We've gone over a self-locus of control. We're going to talk about trust. We're going to talk about who to trust, how to trust, and when to not trust. Yeah, and trust is really tied up with things like vulnerability and knowing how uh-huh. vulnerable to be with a new a new partner. And we get a lot of questions on this topic as well. So we just kind of rolled all those together and decided to do a full episode on it. It's going to be really great. Um, again, again, both of us have received a lot of questions about trust, and it's really important for us to you know have a discussion about this. So if you have, you know, over the episode that we've just done, if you have concerns, questions, if you want follow-up, you know, anything, hit our contact page on our website at feralattraction.com. We have a Twitter, we have a Telegram group, we have a submission form, we have a phone number, 94940-SHIT, that you can call. You can cuss me out. I Please cuss me out because I made a mistake. Like, there are so many ways to get into contact with us. We're yeah, in- imminently reachable. Please do. Um, and then, yeah, iTunes reviews. We- we're looking for some of those, too. So get on iTunes. Give us some reviews. We're really trying to promote this content and get it out there because a lot of people really do need this information yeah. on things like STI prevention. It's a kind of a public health service we're trying to render here. So, you know, hopefully we can get out there and get, get the word out a bit more. And I mean, we really do thank you for, you know, all of your questions, all of your, con- you know, everything that you've expressed to us. It, really is great. And I mean, just from this con that we went to, I mean, 
it's very nice to hear that, you know, we're having a positive impact in your life. So especially for this episode, which is now officially every three hours. This is a marathon. This is, this is, this is Titanic. Oh God. Are are we sinking? (laughs) Hopefully not. (laughs) But, you know, I really do thank you for, you know, listening and, you know, letting us, you know, be part of your life every week. Yeah, so, absolutely. With that, I think we'll go and sign off for this week. I'm Metrico. And I'm Vera the Science Collie. Be well.